could we come back and could radio drama work in 1973 and had enough time passed and was it a you know niche market? I don't know that I ever looked at things that detailed. I kind of had an idea and I said, let's see if I can make it work. It, you know, it was, it, it was it wasn't this long thought out step-by-step process. It was a little more seat of the pants in a, in a way. I think what I thought was we could start a new trend. We could start something others might follow. I do think I did see a nostalgia wave coming. And from the studios of the Hollywood Radio Theater in Hollywood, California, the Mutual Broadcasting System brings you an important premier press conference. Now to the Waldorf and your host, Ken Fairchild. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Mutual Broadcasting System and Hollywood Radio Theater's premier press conference, introducing Zero Hour, a new radio drama series. While we're here in New York's Waldorf, a group of outstanding performers, producers, and technicians have gathered in the Hollywood Radio Theater studios in Hollywood for a new radio production. Not only will we be exchanging information, announcements, and questions with them, Mr. Gary J. Worth, Vice President of the Mutual Broadcasting System. Mr. J. M. Kolos, President of the Hollywood Radio Theater. So both of these proceedings are being simultaneously broadcast coast to coast by a closed circuit to the more than 630 Mutual Radio Network affiliates around the United States. To his right, Mr. Rod Serling, who is host and narrator of Zero Hour. You'll be hearing more from these gentlemen. But before we continue, let's switch to Hollywood for their introductions by the producer-director of Zero Hour... Mr. Elliot Lewis. Good morning. Welcome to California. We're all gathered here. November 1st, 1973. The Waldorf Astoria Hotel, New York City. We're listening in on a press conference hosted by the Mutual Broadcasting System. They purchased the rights to air the Zero Hour from the just heard J.M. Colos. The Zero Hour has been hosted by Rod Serling and directed by Elliot Lewis. It's Mutual's first dramatic radio show in nearly 20 years. Thank you, Elliot. Let me introduce a gentleman we've just been joined by here at the Waldorf in New York, chairman of the board of the Mutual Broadcasting Corporation, Mr. John Harden, to my immediate right. And now I'd like to introduce to you again the president of the Mutual Broadcasting System, Mr. C. Edward Little. Uh, thank you, Ken, and good morning, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome each of you to our press conference and have you share with me the excitement of this occasion in which Mutual is announcing the return of new mystery drama to network radio, which we feel was the original birthplace of radio drama. The Mutual Broadcasting System has devoted many months in extensive research in our quest to develop and present an outstanding drama series. As a national radio network with responsibility to more than 630 affiliates and to millions of listeners throughout the United States, we wanted to be absolutely certain that we would present only a high-quality product. We are now proud to introduce Mutual's new and exciting mystery drama series entitled Zero Hour, featuring original dramas written especially for radio starring Hollywood's greatest names, Patty Duke, Nina Fosh, Tina Nguyen, Richard Crenna, along with many others, and hosted by Rod Serling, to be premiered on the Mutual Network Monday, December the 17th. As Mutual Broadcasting spent much of the 1950s changing ownership groups, 
while national advertising was slowly abandoning radio for TV. Mutual ended its last two remaining half-hour dramas, Counterspy and Gangbusters, in November of 1957. Sports and news began to take up the majority of the network's programming. Throughout the 1960s, more frequent ownership and management changes continued to create network instability, before C. Edward Little was named president in 1972. During his time as president, Little created the Mutual Black Network, the Mutual Spanish Network, and the Mutual Southwest Network. Under Little's administration, Mutual became the first commercial broadcasting entity to use satellite technology for program delivery. He also hired Larry King to host an all-night phone-in talk show. King was a one-time announcer for Little at WGMA in Florida. He went on to national fame in both radio and TV, winning a coveted Peabody Award along the way. But that's not why we're eavesdropping in 1973. We're here for the return of dramatic programming on network radio in the form of the Zero Hour, which had been airing in syndication since the fall. What will include a sound, a glimpse behind the scenes of production. Let you hear firsthand how much better today's techniques and electronic equipment can capture the suspense of new radio drama. Let's join them in the studio. Go ahead. Why is this such a momentous event? How did we get to this point? Tonight, we'll find out. I think people were so thrilled to do it. It was something that hadn't been done for a while. Happy to be working in that environment and having an Elliot Lewis direct them. And it was just a lot of fun. And it was different. It was something different for them. So there was definitely a lot of camaraderie. I don't remember any incident or backstabbing or that kind of stuff. It was a lot of fun and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that everyone was just happy to be there. It certainly wasn't the money. It was just doing something that was creative and different and not what they normally did every day. So that's what we got. You know, we got TV actors and actresses and film people and there's never an issue about them getting paid after scale. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 146. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we spotlight the rebirth of radio drama in the form of The Zero Hour, which aired in syndication in 1973, before being purchased by the Mutual Broadcasting System. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform, and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is 80 Drums Around the World's rendition of Caravan. It is perhaps a perfect Mondo Exotica composition for radio drama in the 1970s. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash group slash thewallbreakers. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 official Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. 
grew up in the west side of L.A. A lot of my friends' parents were in the entertainment business. My dad wasn't. He was in the furniture business. But, you know, I grew up around that environment, always was attracted to it. So I probably had the bug about entertainment or communication. I went to the University of Southern California. I was a communications major. I guess I minored in radio and television. That was my interest, but I knew that I didn't want to be in the insurance business, and I'm using that as a metaphor for, I knew that I wanted to do something either in entertainment or advertising, communication. I probably didn't know exactly what at that time. I had just got out of the Army. I graduated high school, and the um, Army had a six-month reserve program, which allowed you to go active duty, and then you kind of went to meetings for a number of years. I took advantage of that program, and when I finished, I went on to USC, and I don't think I have a specific recollection of what I wanted to be at USC. Interestingly enough, I had several part-time jobs, one of which was a page at CBS TV City, another one was working for one of the local TV stations. I actually was on radio at USC. They had a classical radio station. I didn't last long because I had trouble pronouncing all those Russian classical <laughs> composers. Now just turn around real slow and don't get any stupid ideas, okay? Like you said, you ain't going to give me no argument. No argument at all. Now look here, kid. Hi, mister. There ain't no need. I, I told you, there's a cash register. Help yourself. Five bills. Five crummy bills? Mister, I don't want no trouble. You can have whatever's here. Just take it and go, okay? Theater 5 presents Mr. James Earl Jones in Incident on US-1. This network big four radio drama, Theater 5, ran on ABC and was launched on August 3, 1964. Unfortunately, by the mid-1960s, network radio had undergone a transformation. Theater 5's half-hour time slot only allocated 21 minutes of story time. The other nine minutes went to news, station identification, and local advertising. ABC's affiliates also had the first right of refusal. In some big markets, Theater 5 ran on other stations. 256 total episodes were produced before Theater 5 was canceled after the July 30, 1965 episode. For the next seven years, except for any dramatic vignettes on NBC's monitor, NBC, CBS, ABC and Mutual Broadcasting's network-fed programming was relegated to news, sports, talk and music. Then in early 1973, an entrepreneurial ad man named J.M. Kolos had a big idea. He grew up in Southern California around the entertainment and media industry. The work at CBS was part-time while I was going to USC. Then I went to work in a mailroom at an advertising agency. They had a training program. That's kind of how you got started. And it was called Carson Roberts. They were a terrific little boutique agency on the West Coast. Handled Mattel Toys was their first account. Mattel had just gotten off the ground. It was a garage operation initially. 
after that, I went to work for a small agency, spent about five years with them, and one day decided that either it was now or never, took a count or two with me and opened up my own little agency and was in the advertising business, did pretty well, pretty quickly, but also started doing a lot of entrepreneurial things entertainment-wise. Bottom line answer is that I've always been driven to uh, try to execute on ideas that I had. If I could come up with something, I wanted to see if I could actually make it work. Colos's idea? He sensed an oncoming nostalgia wave and wanted to relaunch a high-production serialized audio drama, but updated for the modern sensibilities of 1973. I was very, and always have been, very entrepreneurial. I've always kind of been into nostalgia, and uh, in fact, some of my later things would indicate that as well. So something probably that I heard, maybe some article about radio, it probably was sparked from something that I read, and uh, as I said, I probably uh, said, hey, there's maybe an idea there. Uh, it's been a while. I was heavily involved in the advertising marketing business and had dealt with broadcast radio and television stations. And I thought it might be kind of fun to see if I could make it work. And that's probably the genesis of the idea. San Mateo Times, February 20th, 1973. The revival of radio drama has been hinted for the past couple of years. Right now, however, radio drama is a Hollywood business again, with a number of studios producing shows for the market. Rod Serling is going to host a weekly series of five half-hour installments called The Zero Hour. Patty Duke Aston, John Aston, and Howard Duff have been set for the first show, with Elliot Lewis directing. AFTRA, which has been suffering in the radio field, has entered radio production independently. Five half-hour pilots are in the works. The demand for new, modern drama has come as a result of shows all over America, which have been playing some of the classics. Bob Foster, Screenings. Kolos needed a hook. He felt that by telling one story in five half hours over the course of a contained week, he could keep the listeners' attention and get them to tune back in. Enter Rod Serling, famed creator of The Twilight Zone. Serling had worked in radio in Springfield, Marion, Columbus, and Cincinnati, Ohio. Rod Serling, you know, was my choice. He was a terrific guy. He lived in the Palisades, Pacific Palisades, fairly close to where I lived. I thought of him as the host, and I asked around, and somebody gave me his number, home number, and I called him. And we hit it off, and guess we met. And he loved the concept, and it was a pretty easy arrangement. So he was already in place when Elliot Lewis came on board, and we put the production team together. Colos was soon put in touch with producer Jack Myers. I don't remember how I got a hold of Jack. He wasn't, as I was talking to people about this idea, perhaps someone had mentioned Jack, somebody that knew his way around the business, and then I talked to Jack, and then put me in touch with Elliot, and uh, I put together kind of the outline, the concept of what I was looking for, then we put the package together, and that's kind of how it started. The Elliot that Jay Colos references is Elliot Lewis. Once called Mr. Radio, 
as Lewis was simultaneously involved in the production of five shows. By 1973, he had nearly 40 years of experience as a writer, director, actor, and producer. Yeah, it started with the five-part stories, which was Kolos's idea, Jay Kolos, when he hired me to do it, and we did those, and it was to be syndicated. I have always felt that everybody in the entertainment business should know enough about every part of the entertainment business so that they respect what the other people are doing. Any actor who comes in and mutters about a script should be sat in front of a typewriter and put a piece of yellow paper in the typewriter and say, fade in, interior Lucy's living room day. She comes down the stairs, her hair and curlers. Go. <laughs> Give me the other 32 pages, you know, and then argue about is this a good script or a bad script. And conversely, the writer who is, oh, these lines are so precious, should be made to stand in front of an audience and read aloud a bad joke and look like a fool. <laughs> As the actor does while the guy, you look into the wings and the writer just went, oh, well. <laughs> well, they all, right on, baby. You're standing there with mud on your face. You know, you just made one of those big things and nothing happened. And the writer's going, oh. Kolos was able to secure the rights to several stories. Now he needed acting talent. When I was putting the budgeting together or thinking about what it was going to cost to produce these shows, I went to ASTRA, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, and I said, look, I want to bring back old radio, and what is the scale, and how does that work, and, you know, what are we talking about from a union standpoint? And, well, they didn't laugh me out of the office. They thought I was a little bit nuts, and said, I, we, you know, we don't know, we haven't done it, I don't know, and they gave me some figure, which was maybe $80 a segment, something like that, which meant that an actor would get $400 for doing the five shows. Sounds pretty good, you know, they were going to go along with it. So, and then they, you know, they wished me luck, but they kind of kind of got the sense they thought I was just some nut off the street. The goal was to pair name-brand film and TV talent with the best Hollywood radio veterans. Howard Duff could have fit into either category. How long was the uh, Phantom Pilot on the air, or in the air? About two and a half years, mm -hmm. as I remember. Mm -hmm. Then I, when I went off, then I starved for a little while, and... Elliot Lewis helped me, uh, and finally I was able to crack this magic circle of uh, radio actors. They were rather tight. It was tight. Should we say snobbish? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And this <laughs> is still prior to uh, the Second World War. Huh? This is prior to, to World War Deuce, yeah. Yeah, and there is this nucleus of actors on the West Coast that do 98% well, of the there work. Were, I would say roughly about the Magic 20, what was it, or something like that, who did most of the work. Yeah, like Hans Conrad and William Hans Conrad. Conrad. Oh, the whole bunch of guys. Frank Nelson, oh, yes, yes. Uh, Lou Merrill, Elliot Lewis, uh, Kathy Lewis, Kathy who was then his wife. By the 1970s, Duff and Elliot Lewis had been friends for 30 years. They both helped grow the Armed Forces Radio Service during World War II. Yeah, and then I was back in the infantry again and at Salina, Kansas, of all places, and I got orders to come to Hollywood. Are you ready for this? For the Armed Forces Radio Service. It was the talk of the, the whole division. <laughs> this dumb fool is going to Hollywood. And what was it like in the Armed Forces? This was a pioneering effort in those days. Uh, the Armed Forces Radio Service? Armed For yes, that part of your career, yes. Well, actually, the they, didn't, the they didn't really know what to do with people like myself, who actually, I was not a writer. 
per se. I was not a producer. I was not a director. So Elliot Lewis and myself and Alan Hewitt and a couple of other people were put in charge of... Uh, Elliot and I, originally, we recorded regular commercial programs off the air, and then we had to reassemble them because of censorship reasons, you know, in wartime, where certain things were verboten. And we reproduced them, as a matter of fact. That was our job. We, it was a separate department. We turned on an awful lot of programs a week. You actually contributed to the saving of thousands and thousands of radio shows. I didn't? Because, absolutely, because, you see, the networks never preserved the radio shows. I, I mean, they were all done live. Nobody bothered to record them. All that acetate was they destroyed. Just, right. They went out. AFRS put these things. You edited out the commercials, and you put them on the discs, and then the discs were shipped all over the world. Sure. Long after the war, long after radio really had kind of moved out of the picture as it was as we knew it in those 30s and 40s, some of these discs were found by GIs who grew up listening to those shows, and they made tapes of them and sent them back home, and if it wouldn't have been for... That's probably the best thing that ever came out of World War II was the yeah. fact that those old radio shows. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't really aware of that. Somebody said, gee, I heard one of your old shows on the air. And I mm -hmm. said, well, I don't, I don't know where anybody would get a hold of a recording because I asked CBS at one time uh, if they had it. No, they destroyed them all, you yeah. know, because I don't even have one, one lousy acetate <laughs> from all those well, five I'll send, years. I'll send you a tape. Thank if you. If you'd like. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, somebody, no, somebody did send me a tape. Duff was chosen along with Patty Duke and John Astin, to lead the first cast in an adaptation of Bill S. Ballinger's The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. Colos put the program under the umbrella of the Hollywood Radio Theater. They chose Radio Recorders, the largest independent studio in Los Angeles, for the program. The Hollywood Radio Theater presents Zero Hour. It was nothing more than just an umbrella. Was I thinking about other programming? No. I think it was just a device. I don't think there was anything more to it than just an umbrella name presents Zero Hour. That was, that was the idea. I think it was radio recorders. There was two studios. We were doing a lot of commercials too, so I was, we were using uh, recording studios. Gold Star was one that I remember, but I think it may have been radio recorders. New York, Associated Press, April 25th, 1973. It's hard to believe, but there's a guy running loose who says he's got a different kind of new mystery series. What makes me agree with him? The series is for radio. He's J.M. Colos, and he's from L.A., where many strange ideas often occur. The strangest? Someone these days can sell a half-hour, five-day-a-week radio series, complete with sound effects. But the selling is brisk, according to Colos, who says 110 radio stations in the U.S. have bought the new series, called The Zero Hour. He hopes to have a total of 300 stations signed up for July. If you're a confirmed television buff, you may think Colos has a screw loose. But if you are a radio freak, you may see, or hear, as this case may be, what he's up to. There's been a gradual nationwide revival of old radio series like The Lone Ranger and The Green Hornet, Charles Mickelson, a New Yorker who leases these and other shows to radio stations, says more than 400 now carry them. What Colos is doing is simply coming up with a modern version of the good old radio days, and as he puts it, trying to anticipate a trend. A few established Hollywood stars have joined the effort. Writer-producer Rod Serling will be the host. The series premiere week will star Howard Duff, 
Patty Duke, and John Aston. The show will take the form of a five-part story each week. The admonition to tune in tomorrow to see who survived what. Ironically, Colos barely remembers the golden days of radio. He's only 32. I used to hide the radio under the pillow at night and listen to the old shows, he said. But they went out before I really had a chance to get into them. Jay Sharbat. The Zero Hour would debut in late summer. Arizona Republic, June 11, 1973. You'll like what Cool FM has in store for you. The station has bought the brand new radio drama series, The Zero Hour, which promises to revive the good old days, but in a modern format. Announcing the new series was E. Morgan Skinner Jr., promoted last week from Cool AM account executive to Cool FM assistant station manager. Judging from the pilot tape, it should be an interesting show. Each story lasts a week. A half-hour episode is presented nightly, Monday through Friday, with the climax coming on Friday. A new show starts the following Monday. Cool has bought 26 weeks of the series, all that Hollywood Radio Theater has available so far. The program originally was to be started in mid-June, but the unsettled Writers Guild of America strike apparently has created some delay. Current plans are to begin in mid-July. Each show will be broadcast at 7.30 p.m. on Cool FM, and then rebroadcast on Cool AM at 10.30 p.m. But that's during television's primetime, you say. That's the whole point. Zero Hour is contemporary, but reflective of radio's golden era, said Skinner. And they're doing the thing in such a way as to leave people free to utilize their minds. By beginning in July, it takes the series into the fall to compete against new TV shows. A lot of us have become disenchanted with what television has to deliver. It's going to be interesting to see what a top-quality radio series will do against primetime TV. The quality of this show is superb. It's crisp and well done. Hollywood Radio Theater is the brainchild of J.M. Kolos, a veteran in the advertising and communications field. Rod Serling hosts the series. The first episode, titled The Wife of the Red-Haired Man, stars Patty Duke Aston, John Aston, and Howard Duff. The yarn is about the pursuit of a dead couple. Duff, of course, does the pursuing. Jack Swanson. Jazz and talk. 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 WRVR in New York. 106.7 FM. Jazz and talk. Jazz and talk. Jazz and talk. Are you ready for the ultimate test? Are you safe? The time is now on the Hollywood Radio Theater. This is The Zero Hour. 
the Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's best-selling novel of the pursuit of a damned couple. The wife of the red-haired man. Starring Patty Duplaston. John Astor. And Howard Duff. Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. This week's story draws its title from an ancient Irish poem. Here's the last verse. But the day of doom shall come and the hills and harbors be rent. A mist shall fall on the sun from the dark clouds heavily sent. The sea shall be dry and the earth under mourning and ban. Then loud shall he cry for the wife of the red-haired man. It's the tale of the hunted and the hunter, the pursuer and the pursued, the stalking of life and death. Do you believe, as I do, that the hunter and his quarry build an empathy between them? A sympathy? As the chase builds toward the inevitable conclusion, is it possible that, subconsciously, they become aware of each other's moves, counter-moves, plans, even emotions? There are two individuals who will tell you that's so. The poet and the cop. Our story begins after this word. WRVR is proud to announce a new Saturday night series. It's Flipside, every Saturday night from 7.30 to 8 o'clock. You'll hear your favorite rock, folk, and pop stars singing their songs and sharing their thoughts. It's Flipside, it's Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Stevie Wonder, Roberta Flack, Yusef Latif, The Fifth Dimension, Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Okay. It's Edgar Winter and Judy Collins and Richie Havens and Curtis Mayfield. It's Flipside, Saturdays at 7.30 on WRVR. Picture this, a windy, rainy November night in New York City. A man about 30, his most identifiable feature, a crest of flaming red hair, stands in a public telephone booth. 
Hello? Hello? This is Rohan. This is the Turner house. There's no one. Rohan? Did you say Rohan? Hello? Who is this? The red-haired man wears no wrinkles. When he pulls up his jacket collar, we see a revolver stuck into his trousers. The red-haired man walks to the end of the street, where he turns and is lost to our view. His destination is East Vandu's Place, a small exclusive street near the river, where large apartments cost a lot of money. Inside one of them, a married couple, Albert and Mercedes Turner. Quiet. What? Oh, am I? I'm sorry. Would you care to tell me who called? There wasn't anyone. I heard you asking questions. You told someone this was the Turner house. You said another name. What was it? I've forgotten. It wasn't anything. It couldn't have been. You lie badly. And you lie a great deal of the time. Don't, Albert. Please, don't bait me. The door? Yes. Hmm. Shall I? No. No, I'll get it. Hello, Mercy. You... It is you. Oh, you. You. I tried to warn you. I called, but then I lost my nerve. I froze. Oh, mercy. Mercy. Mercedes? Who's at the door? Mercedes? Come in, Hugh. Who is it? It's someone who... Albert, it's someone who... It's all right, Mercy. It's all right. Well, if you're through kissing my wife, come in and let me get a look at you. Come in, darling. Come in. Well, introduce us, my dear. I'm Hugh Rohan. Am I supposed to know you? Mercy, didn't you tell... Hugh's my... I thought he'd been killed in Vietnam. Rohan? Oh, of course, that's the name you said on the phone. The last time I saw Mercy, she was my wife. Your wife? Mercedes, is that so? Yes. I was Hugh's wife. Long ago. <laughs> Did you just forget to tell me, my dear? Slip your mind in it? That you were already married when you jumped into my bed? Don't talk to her like... I wasn't married. I'd obtained an Enoch Arden decree. You divorced me? Well, then, <laughs> at least you're not a bigamist. Whatever else you might be. Why, Mercy? Why did you Seven do... Seven years, Hugh. 
They said you were missing in action, presumed dead. I waited seven years, darling. For a con. What? <laughs> you waited seven years for a convict. Missing in action? <laughs> Don't make me laugh. <laughs> Hugh, what does he mean? I mean he's a con. He has the stink of prison all over him. Haircut, prison issue, shoes. Unless he's anemic, he hasn't seen the sun all those seven missing in action years. What's he talking about, Hugh? Put that phone down. Oh, my dear phony fellow, it's my duty as a public-spirited citizen to tell the police there's an escaped con in my living room. Put it down. If you come near me, I'll blow your head off. Put that gun away, Albert, please. Please, put the gun away. Operator. <gasps> Albert? He's dead. You shot him. He was going to call the police and spoil it. I waited seven years, Mercy. Seven years! But he's dead. What will happen to us? I don't remember if I'd ever seen a dead body before. But Hugh faced the matter as though it were almost commonplace. He hung up the phone, which had fallen to the floor, and then closed Albert's eyes. He would have separated us again. I couldn't let him do that. Was it true? What he said about you? No. We can't stay here. Then we'll leave. You take what you need and we'll leave together. No. Not yet. What? I can't leave until tomorrow. We'll need money. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, I'll stay with you until morning. No, you have to leave now while it's dark. Otherwise, someone might see you. But what about him? We'll put him in his room. The maid comes at 10 o'clock. We don't want her to find him right away. All right. Where do you want him? His bedroom. I'd better answer it. It might be the operator. Maybe she traced his call. Where's, where's his bedroom? Through that door, the room on the, on the right. All right. If that's the operator, tell her everything's fine. We were playing a game and the phone fell off the table. Hello? Al? What? Al there? Albert? Did you want to talk to Albert? Let me talk to Al. Who is it? Is that the operator? Someone wants to speak to Albert. Not Albert, Al. What's the matter? Are you drunk? I want to talk to Alan. Alan Fox. My goodness, can't you understand a simple request? Alan Fox. That's that. You have a wrong number. There's no one here by that name. Oh, I'm most extremely sorry. I thought it was someone... I don't know, someone who heard us or saw us through a window. I was frightened. It's all right. Everything's all right now. We're together. Yes. And we'll always be together because that's how it was meant to be. Go now. While it's dark. I'll get the money in the morning. Then come to the rooming house where I'm staying. Here's the address. I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. 
All right. In the morning. Good night. Good night. Before this September 3rd, 1973 debut episode of The Zero Hour over WRVR, 106.7 FM in New York, Colo spent the summer of 1973 traveling around, selling the series to stations in syndication. After that, he was joined by Rod Serling on a promotional tour. I got to know him a little bit. You know, he was a heavy smoker. He was, and of course, in that time, he smoked on airplanes. We traveled quite a bit together because we did a lot of promotion for the show, and I was out a lot selling the show, you know, the radio stations. And then he and I went out on this promotional tour. So, yeah, I enjoyed his company a lot. Actually, um, I remember one incident. He had written something for, I think it was Twilight Zone, but I, but I may be wrong, about a bomb that's placed on an airplane and that when the airplane reaches a certain height, the bomb would explode. It was something in that vein. Well, we landed in, I think it was Salt Lake City, and there were a bunch of reporters there, and in fact, Somebody had, was attempting to do exactly what was Rod had written about in this piece that he had done. So they were curious about whether he had, in fact, felt responsible for all that and that kind of stuff. Mm. I do remember that quite vividly. But he was a great guy to travel with. He was very nice and very accommodating to everybody. Radio legend Les Tremaine played Patty Duke's husband, Albert. You know, radio was a wonderful medium. It's a shame that radio drama is what I'm speaking of. It's a shame that it's gone. It did something for actors, and I have said this many times, that was never been done before or since in all of history. For the journeyman actor, the lay actor, it made him an upstanding, homeowning, stay-in-one-place, family-raising, tax-paying, bill-paying. It did all these things for actors who were not big stars. You had a steady salary, and you became famous, and people loved you, and you had they became so familiar with your voice. It was a great ID point for me in the theater in New York mm-hmm. and uh, also when I went into pictures in Hollywood. People didn't know my face particularly, but as soon as they heard the voice, they knew who it was. And it was a great tie-in for me. Telephone operators. Just at random, you pick up yeah. the phone and make a yeah. call and they say, I know the voice? Mm-hmm. What was that show you were on? You know... <laughs> A lot of older ladies, you know, uh, middle-aged ladies or telephone operators, and they know voices. Traveling around the country, you sign your name on a credit card in a gas station or something, and mm-hmm. they remember you. And you have friends everywhere. It's beautiful, not only as an entree to a lot of things, but just the fact that there is a warm feeling in the recollections of the things you did and they heard you do. Your imagination created everything. A drama unfolds every day on WRVR as Arthur Albert presents Connections. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Quaxer Fortune has a cousin in the Bronx. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. And you do have a friend at Chase Manhattan. But you have a real chum in Arthur Albert, the only three-foot-seven-inch telephone talk show host in New York who doesn't mind being Jewish. You simply mustn't miss Connections every weekday morning at 11, because when you do, Arthur misses you. Three-foot-seven-inch people are sensitive, and even though Arthur is paranoid and occasionally forgets what he's talking about, his program is the stuff that life is made of. And having ended a sentence in a preposition, I rest my case.
Connections is heard weekdays at 11 a.m. on WRVR. This offer is void where prohibited, including certain parts of Boise, Idaho. Each weeknight at 7.30, WRVR looks ahead to 1947. It's a nostalgic look at radio entertainment the way it used to be. And now RVR announces a new schedule of old-time radio programs on Mondays. Sherlock Holmes is back by popular demand. The Lone Ranger continues to ride through every Tuesday along with his Indian companion, Tanto. On Wednesdays, it's The Shadow. That invincible crime fighter with his special powers. Meanwhile, the Green Hornet buzzes on to Thursday to keep crime in its place. And the weekends with the dramas full of adventure and intrigue on the clock. So listen to RVR each weeknight at 7.30. Radio entertainment the way it used to be is the way it is now. As RVR presents original old-time drama radio programs. My name is Williams, Detective 19th Precinct. Not every detective working on a murder in New York City belongs to the Homicide Squad. The detective from the precinct where the killing occurs is also assigned to it. East Panda's place is in the 19th, and therefore the report of Albert Turner's death came over our desk, and I went out on it. The medical examiner and the technical services crew were already there when I arrived. Williams, over here. <coughs> hey, you precinct guys sleep in or what? It's almost noon. Only got it half hour ago. When homicide here? Half hour ago. I just got here. Hmm. Oh, this is quite some beautiful layout. Yeah, it's class. Real dough. Who reported it? The maid, Thelma Jordan, she found the body. Uh, Miss Jordan? Turner's her boss. She'll tell you about it. Yes, Mr. Scores. This is Detective Williams here, Miss Jordan, 19th Precinct. He'll be working with me on this. Hello. Uh, tell me where you found Mr. Turner. Well, the poor man was in his bedroom. I thought he was asleep, lying in bed, covers all drawn up. He left her alone? Oh, no, sir. They are married. There's a Mrs. Turner? Oh, yes, indeed. Well, where is she? Well, I'm sure I don't know. She wasn't here this morning when I came in. She at work? Oh, no, sir. She don't work. Well, isn't Mr. Turner usually up and around? Oh, yes, sir, but this morning Miss Turner left me a note. Here. Let me see that. Thelma, Mr. Turner wasn't well last night. Don't awaken him. He needs the rest. <laughs> Mercedes Turner. Why'd you finally try to wake him? Well, his office called. Said it was urgent. I went into the bedroom and... He was lying there. Okay, thanks. Were you here last night, Miss Jordan? No, no, last night was my night off. I stayed with my folks. Okay, thanks, you can go. You'll leave your things though, will you? Until we've checked everything. Yes, yes, thank you. Dr. Branch from the medical examiner's office, he's with the body. What do you suppose happened to Mrs. Turner? I can't even guess. Morning, Will. Doc, what happened? One shot straight in the ticker. Fully clothed, suit, shoes, lying under covers. Tell me, doctor, did you close the eyes? Well, but somebody did. Who? His wife? Remind me to ask her when we find her. Also, how come she didn't notice a dead husband in the bedroom? This is a man's room. Apparently, they had separate bedrooms. How long has he been dead? It's a guess. I'd say since around midnight. Another guess for you, doc. Possible suicide? Yeah, negative. No powder stains in the front of his shirt. There's at least none I can find without a microscope. Besides, when There's I... There's no gun. That's right. 
There is one. We haven't found it yet. Uh, another thing, you'll notice that not much bleeding. Probably shot someplace else, then placed in the bed. Any idea where? Uh, possibly. The technical boys found something in the living room. Oh? What? Possible blood stain on the rug. They clipped the sample and they're going to check it. Mm. Near the bar by the phone. Yeah. Shot as he was calling someone? Maybe. You know, when I got here, this chair had been pulled up to cover that stain. The boys nearly missed it. Yeah. Oh, uh, Miss Jordan? Yes? Uh, listen, does Mrs. Turner have a book where she keeps phone numbers, you know, uh, stores, shops, beauty parlor, places where she might be this morning? Yeah, I'll get it. A and would you uh, check her things for us, see if anything's missing? Yeah, right, right away. Where do you suppose she is, Will? Hmm? I don't know. Can't even guess. Think maybe something's happened to her? It's possible, Scores. It's very possible. In November 1973... Howard Duff was a guest of Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran's WTIC Golden Age of Radio program. He spoke positively about his experience with the Zero Hour. Good evening, and with me once again is the man who uh, really makes the program possible with his fabulous collection of recordings, Ed Corcoran. Well, thank you, Dick. That's very nice words. Ed, you know, I'm going to let you introduce our guest tonight because you had the opportunity to uh, meet him prior to the show. Maybe I can start off by asking what your license number is there, Mr. 137596. What does that mean, do you think? <laughs> None other than Sam Spade, alias Howard Duff, uh, Sam Spade, and uh, many other famous roles in both radio, television, movies, and theater, Dick. So we've got another biggie here. Tonight. We certainly have. <laughs> Howard, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the golden age of radio and to put your career in perspective because you are known today by current-day audiences on television and motion pictures, on the stage, you're one of the few who had a major career in radio, but has gone on to even more exciting things. You mean I've survived? Real sense. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Tell that's the it? Hollywood Radio Theater that uh, Elliot Lewis, my old friend and cohort for many years, he feels that there is an audience for radio drama, more or less as we used to do it, and possibly with a few new added stereophonic effects, and we did a show. Each week they're going to take one particular book, I believe, and dramatize it, how did it I feel to, it might go, to, to, yeah, to get back behind get back the microphone? Back again. Yeah. It was like I'd never been away. Yeah. And, of course, doing it with Elliot, he's so easygoing, and he knows exactly so well. You know, he's so together, everything. Uh, he, we did it the, the, the easy way, and I think the right way. What about uh, writers? What about sound effects people? Where have they all disappeared to? How did you get this thing together again to work? It's amazing. Uh, we had everybody on the show, I guess, uh, all the old radio people that I've ever known, with the exception of Lorraine. I don't know why. how come Lorraine Tuttle wasn't on it. But anyway, Mary Jane Croft, Elliot's wife, and uh, oh, all kinds of people were on it. <laughs> And it happened so suddenly, all of it. Hugh returned from the dead, holding me in his arms. Suddenly we were young again, and innocent. Then Albert began saying those terrible, threatening things. Of course Hugh had shot him. If I'd had a gun, I would have too. Hugh killed him for me, really. Now we had to get away. I couldn't sleep that night alone in the apartment with Albert's body. In the morning, I gathered some clothes, including my fur coat, left a note for Thelma Jordan, the maid, and hurried to the bank. Mrs. Turner, good morning. How nice to see you. Good morning, Mr. Forrest. 
How may we serve you? Is Mr. Turner feeling well? Oh, yes, thank you. Would you cash this check for me? Yes, certainly. $4,500. Are you closing your account? Oh, I wouldn't dream of it. No. If you promise you won't tell Albert. Not a word. Well, I'm being terribly extravagant. I simply can't resist a lovely new car, and I promise to pay the difference in cash. And surprise, Albert. Exactly. Of course. Oh, and uh, while you're getting the cash, I promised Albert I'd bring him some papers he left in our safe deposit box. The money will be here when you get back. Thanks so much. Mercy? Oh. Oh, Mercy. Oh, Hugh. My love. Come in. Leave the bag where it is. Here, here. Let me have your coat. Where have you been? I, I thought... I thought it's too good to be true. She's gone to the police. She's told them what happened. No. No, darling. I withdrew money from the bank and took my jewelry from the safe deposit Doesn't box. matter. Doesn't matter. You're here. That's all that's important. Seven years, Mercy. I waited seven years to be with you. Seven empty years. I, I just don't seem to be able to function without you. Hugh. What did Albert mean? When he called you a convict? Oh, nothing. Forget it. Come on. Come here. Come here with me. Here. Here, sit down. Was it terrible? All those years? I told you, I'm not complete without you. Oh, mercy. We can't stay here, darling. The police will be looking for us. I know. Hugh? Yeah. I felt the same way. Incomplete. All the while you were gone. You're all I I've ever really had, my darling. You're everything that makes me warm and soft. Oh, you. There's certain procedures you set in motion after homicide. You look for the deceased's enemies. You question everyone who might know something about what happened at the time of the crime. You make sure the lab is checking fingerprints and possible blood stains, lost bits of hair, anything and everything. My job, you're trying to solve a puzzle. When you first begin, this will be there. Yes, sir, I, I certainly will. Hey, who was that? The commissioner. Want to know what we have. They're asking questions upstate, you know. Well, tell me, Will. What has the 19th been able to come up with in how long? Six hours since we got the call? Well, we have a dead man and a missing wife. I called the phone numbers and made found for me, beauty parlor and such. No one's seen her for the last day or so. The lab's pretty sure Turner was shot in the living room. They think that blood stain near the phone will match his type. That's great. Turner's shot in the living room near the phone. 
With a bullet in his heart, he walks into the bedroom and gets settled down under the covers, which is where he expires. Yeah. Impossible. And there's no gun in that apartment. Suicide is definitely out. Which leaves us at square one. Someone shot Turner in the living room, carried him to the bedroom, shut his eyes, then left the premises for who knows where. That, uh, that someone being Mrs. Turner, huh? That's all we have at the moment. Well, maybe we got a little more, Will. What do you mean? According to the maid, Mrs. Turner's overnight bag is missing, along with a few dresses, shoes and things, mm. and a fur coat, some bracelets, earrings, etc. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll find the lady. Uh, this is Mercedes Turner. Last seen when uh, last night? Yeah, as far as we know. Maybe an overnight bag. Fur coat. Let's see. Uh, height. Uh, uh, you got a picture of her? From the apartment, you mean? Yeah, from the apartment. Every dummy in the world has snapshots. Weddings, picnics, holidays, trips, whatever. Not this lady. What? We tore that place apart. Well, there is no picture of her. We're putting out on all points for Mercedes Turner, and we don't have the faintest idea what she looks like. I don't know if I suggested Patty Duke or how that came about. I do remember being there definitely when she uh, was performing, and I remember one scene where she's at, you know, this is radio, and she's crying. I mean, she's basically tears are coming out of her eyes, and and then, boy, I'm thinking, wow, that's an actress, you know. Mm-hmm. Nobody's seeing it, but she's really, really shedding tears, literally. I had a lot of respect for her. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. Listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. This week, in Bill S. Ballinger's The Wife of the Red-Haired Man, Patty Duke Aston is Mercedes, John Aston is Rohan, and Howard Duff is Detective Williams. Featured in the cast are Harold Gould as Detective Scores, Les Tremaine as Turner, Irene Tedrow as Thelma, Benny Rubin as the Doctor, Harry Hickox as Forrest. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is the executive producer and Karen Lee Cohen, associate producer. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Kohler's Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow. And once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. Hello, 
this is Les Davis. WRVR's answer to Lamont Cranston. I can't be seen, but I can be heard. Why don't you join me for music right after old-time radio every weekday at 8 p.m.? 106.7 FM is the magic number. Right, Tonto? Jazz is on WRVR. RVR's got lots of jazz. The jazz place is RVR. Jazzy people listen to us. RVR is jazz. And jazz is in. Jazz is on WRVR. In the morning. In the evening. Have we got jazz? Yeah. Right now, experience New York City like you've never before. The speculation is out of control. Yes, sir. The whole Gentlemen, gentlemen. Will you make the right deal? Memories are short in New York. If you don't make a fortune, someone else will. I know you've been bringing rosemary into port illegally. I have eyes and ears and noses and. <laughs> Tongues everywhere. Or fall to greed. If I was caught with diamonds at any time, any time, my sister and I would have been gang raped and murdered. I do this for you. Well, look at what we got here, bricked up. Looks like we caught as a dandy and a whore all alone on South Street with nowhere to hide. Ain't that right, boys? But whatever you choose. There's a choice. You just always make the same choice, the one for yourself. Just make sure you get out in time. Lord, have mercy on us all. Out now on your favorite podcast app. Burning Gotham. The 2022 Tribeca Select audio soap opera. About the fastest growing city in the world. And the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, go to burninggotham.com. We'll be asking for your comments, and are right now, on the telephone at 578 Hello, you're on the air. Hi, yeah, I really liked it a lot. Uh-huh. Did you listen all week? Yeah, I did. Uh-huh. And yeah. I thought this was really good. I think it's different, and it's better than music. Well, bless your heart. Thank you, and we'll see you on Monday. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, Ronnie. Hi. Uh, I love the program, but I wish it was on earlier. Oh, why? Uh, my poor husband arrived home at 5.30, and he's not allowed to speak for 15 minutes. <laughs> well, there may be days that that's a good thing. <laughs> we may be actually helping. Well, <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> Bye-bye. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, I just want to tell you I enjoyed your zero hour very much, and I hope you keep it up. Well, thank you very much. Where are you calling from? Karma. Uh, thank you for calling. You're well, welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. them because if I sold a show in Phoenix, I wasn't about to help them, or not that I wouldn't have, but as a practical matter, help them with local advertisers. And, you know, a radio station would have their list of advertisers and or they knew who they thought would be a good sponsor of the show. 
And I think most of the time they were sponsored as opposed to spot advertisers brought to you by such a car dealer or whatever. Sears came into it. I think we may have helped with Sears. I think that they became kind of a corporate entity. And so that they may have picked up certain of the sponsorship and then left some local spots in there. But that was a little later in the I think. Once Jay Colo sold the show to various radio stations, it was generally up to those stations to sell the show to sponsors. In New York, the Zero Hour was running on WRVR 106.7 FM. WRVR was initially a public radio station owned and operated by the Riverside Church in New York. It began broadcasting New Year's Day 1961. The Riverside Church, located in Morningside Heights, is an interdenominational, interracial, and international church and has long been the center of activism and social justice. WRVR was the first station to win a Peabody for its entire programming, in part for its documentary coverage of the civil rights movement in Birmingham in 1963. In addition to religious and philosophical discussions with Riverside clergy and theologians, WRVR programming included addresses by political and cultural leaders like Indira Gandhi, Aldous Huxley, John F. Kennedy, and Margaret Mead. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his Beyond Vietnam speech at the Riverside Church over WRVR-FM on April 4, 1967. The station also featured the heralded weekly program, Just Jazz, with Ed Beach. In September 1971, WRVR went commercial and shifted to a news format, with the exception of Just Jazz, which continued until 1973. By then, WRVR was experimenting with radio drama in both Golden Age and New Time productions. On September 4th, 1973, part two of the Zero Hour's Wife of the Red-Haired Man took to the air. ultimate test. Are you safe? The time is now on the Hollywood Radio Theater. This is The Zero Hour. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater, presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's best-selling novel of the pursuit of a damned couple. The wife of the red-haired man. Starring Patty Duplaston. John Astor. And Howard Duff. In 
Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. The gentleman's name was Hugh Rohan. He had a head of red hair, a former wife named Mercedes, and a gun. Believing him a casualty of the Vietnam War, his wife Mercedes had divorced him and married another chap named Turner. Seven years later, enter Mr. Hugh Rohan with his red hair and his gun. He discovers that his young and former wife is suffering a bitterly unhappy marriage, and also his fate would have it had not informed Mr. Turner of her previous marriage, the not always eternal but frequently violent triangle. Former husband Rohan faces off with present husband Turner, and in a panic, a 32 caliber slug eliminates the Turner side of the triangle. Best we mention here that there was evidence Rohan had been a convict, although the red-haired gentleman is somewhat loath to discuss it. Mercedes Turner with Hugh flees the premises. With her money and jewelry, she plans to purchase as many days of freedom as possible. Enter now two gentlemen, one named Scores of Homicide, the other Williams of the 19th Precinct. It is Mr. Williams, with a streak of the relentless, who begins a pursuit of the red-haired Hugh Rohan, although at first he's not even aware that Rohan exists. In a moment, he'll try to identify a phantom. But first, this message. <laughs> Each weeknight at 7.30, WRVR looks ahead to 1947. It's a nostalgic look at radio entertainment the way it used to be. And now RVR announces a new schedule of old-time radio programs. On Mondays, Sherlock Holmes is back by popular demand. The Lone Ranger continues to ride through every Tuesday along with his Indian companion, Tanto. On Wednesdays, it's The Shadow. That invincible crime fighter with his special powers. Meanwhile, the Green Hornet buzzes on to Thursday to keep crime in its place. And the weekends with the dramas full of adventure and intrigue on the clock. So listen to RVR each weeknight at 7.30. Radio entertainment the way it used to be is the way it is now. As RVR presents original old-time drama radio programs. Because we didn't have a photograph of Mercedes Turner, scores of homicide interviewed people who knew the woman, and from their descriptions produced a police artist drawing of her. By nightfall, this picture would be circulated to airlines, bus depots, train stations, shipping agents, everywhere where Mercedes Turner might be seen. Meanwhile, I began to check into the missing woman's background, searching for some clue to her whereabouts. Mercedes Turner's maiden name was Clinton. Her home had been in Mountain Forge, Connecticut. I drove up there. The police station was across the street from the railroad depot. I parked and went inside. It's not a state officer. I needed cooperation from the local police. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm uh, looking for Chief Novak. Speaking to him. You the officer called me from New York? Williams, that's right. Long did it take you? Less than three hours. Too close. We folks here feel about city cops. <laughs> well, I didn't realize I was in a popularity contest. 
Mercedes Turner, you said on the phone. Yes. You know her? Yeah. And she was a little girl. Name was Clinton before she was married. What was she like? Nice kid. Real pretty, lively, blonde hair, big blue eyes. You ever get in any trouble around here? Nope. Caution her once in a while against speeding the mic too fast. Lyman Clinton, her dad, gave her a little yellow car when she first went away to school. Mm-hmm. Drove it all over. Real fast sometimes. Uh, you know kids. Yeah. Uh, Clinton's are pretty well off. Uh, don't worry where the next meal's coming from. Yeah. Old family in these parts? Huh? Tolerable. Four or five generations. <laughs> Was uh, Mercedes an only child? Yeah. Light of Lyman's eye. Mighty proud of her. Maybe a mite too proud. How's that? I sort of always figured he knew what was best. Nothing good enough for her, in Lyman's view, regardless what she wanted. You believe she uh, shot her own husband? I don't know. What's your opinion? Well, she wanted too bad enough, she might have. Except one thing don't line up what I know about Mercedes. What's that? Well, she was brung up proper, knows right and wrong. And maybe she got mad in blazes. Even had good enough reason to shoot her husband. But if she did it, she'd take a medicine. She'd walk in and hand you the gun. Well, you see. You see what I mean when you meet a daddy. We left Hugh's terrible little room hand in hand, like young lovers off on an adventure. I knew we had to get out of the city, and so did Hugh. We took a bus across the river to Jersey City and got off on a bleak street lined with used car lots, garages, auto parts stores, crawling and sprawling beside one another. We bought an afternoon newspaper, ducked into a shabby little diner and ordered coffee. Here it is, see? They found him. Yes. But they don't know about you. They're looking for a woman alone. They're looking for me. Mercy, after I left last night... I took every picture of myself I could find and Albert's gun and threw them away. Ah, that's good. Now, got to get away from here. Where should we go? Anywhere. It doesn't matter. Just leave before they find out about me. Yes, I thought we'd buy a car. That's that's good. That's good. The police will expect you to take a plane or a bus or whatever. All right. Wait for me. I'll get a car. Be careful. Be very careful. Radio legend Mary Jane Croft, who was also the wife of Elliot Lewis, was featured in this episode. Years later, she spoke to Spurvak about her radio career and late husband. I don't ever remember. I think the first job I ever got was, do you remember doing Screen Guild yes. when Bobby Lee and Jimmy O'Neill, they conducted, Bob Lee is a big famous writer now, as you all know, but he and Jim O'Neill conducted ad-libs. In other words, they didn't have crowd records at that time. So we all sat in chairs then the director would cue Bob, and then Bob would have everyone, everybody would talk and do yes. rhubarb and walla walla and all that stuff. You weren't allowed to say walla walla. 
What? I don't remember what we said. <laughs> what did you but say? We got said, thrown out if you said wrong. Yeah. yeah, we had to really talk. We just worked constantly, didn't we? Yes, we did. And Elliot Lewis was he Elliot been Lewis was fired director yes, as well a, as a, a perfectly mm-hmm. wonderful oh, yeah. actor. Yes. But he was a wonderful a magnificent actor. director. Mm-hmm. Very easy. So yes. maybe just the opposite of a of a Bill Robeson approach. Well, he was quiet, mm-hmm. wasn't he? No, quiet, he got things done. I found a box that Elliot had with little cards and all alphabetized. What it was, this is how orderly he was. Starting in 1937, I'm cherishing this box of cards. It had every show he did. What it paid, three dollars yes. an hour. Yes. That's right, five dollars. Calling all cars was one of them. What some of the early ones? Yes, right. God, I can't Tapestries remember. Tapestries of life. Yeah, all of these it. things. That and it did. goes all the way through. And every week he totaled it up. But the thing that fascinated me was the names of all these shows. And how much they pay. Yes, right. <laughs> Three dollars and a half. That's right. Chief Novak and I had lunch, and then I called New York and talked to scores. He got the all points bulletin out on Mercedes Turner with her description, and was in the tedious business of checking out everywhere she might have gone. Friends, neighbors, stores, everything. So far, he'd come up empty. The woman had simply disappeared. I was approaching the puzzle from the other direction, trying to find a connecting thread from her earlier days. Chief Novak drove me out to her father's house. Big old farmhouse set back from the road by a twisting gravel drive. Huge trees towered over the house like great leafy umbrellas. Come in. Simon Clinton, the woman's father, was tall and thin, a bit stooped. He had a long, thin face with creases running from cheek to nose. Snow-white hair. Led Novak and me into a study off the big living room. He motioned us to a couple of worn, shiny leather chairs and seated himself behind an old-fashioned roll-top desk. It was a genteel, patrician background for a woman I was beginning to suspect of murder. Chief Novak says you want to talk about my daughter. That's right, Mr. Clinton. Now, before we get started, if I did know anything, I doubt I'd tell you. Furthermore, I'll never believe she shot Albert Turner. Does she have any reason to shoot him? None I know about. Anyone else want to shoot him? No. You're hesitating. Just thinking. Would uh, Mrs. Clinton have any information? Quite sure she wouldn't. Ms. Clinton's uh, gone now. Buried better than five years. I'm sorry, I didn't realize. Uh, When was the last time you saw your daughter? A couple of weeks ago. Dinner one night in the city. You see her often? My daughter and I are very close. Sometimes she comes up here or else I... I go to New York. When did she marry Albert Turner? A little over a year ago. You have a picture of her? No. Not even a wedding picture? You heard me. I don't like pictures. There's one over there. Mrs. Clinton? Yes. That's the exception. And if you had a picture of Mercedes, you wouldn't give it to me anyway, would you? Uh, Williams... I think maybe we uh, better move along. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks for your time, Mr. Clinton. It was while I was buying the car that the questions began gnawing at me. Questions about Hugh. When the war in Vietnam began, Hugh had been one of the first to be drafted. He shipped out very soon after his induction, and then 
Nothing. No word, no trace. Nothing. The Red Cross helped me, but all we could learn was that he was missing. Missing in action, they said. And then his years went by, presumed dead. But I waited. And I felt myself drying up. Aging without him. Is this the car? It's not bad. This is it. What name did you use? Mrs. Walter Brewer. Trenton, New Jersey. Slide over. I'll drive. Do you have a license? You've been away a long time. Yours isn't good now either. Has your right name on it. What's the difference? If we're stopped, that's it for both of us. Yes. Nice to be driving a car again. <laughs> I didn't think it would happen. Away. Far, far away. You and me, Mercy. Just the way it used to be. Yes. Just the way it used to be. After we left Mercedes Turner's father, Chief Novak had someone else he thought I should see. A woman, Clara Goldwater been close to Mercedes in high school. Clara was married now, wife of a foundry worker in Mountain Forge. I'll wait here. Their home was a squatting, shapeless bungalow in a shabby, genteel sort of neighborhood. You've seen a million places like it. Battles? Yes. You used to be Clara Goldwater, a friend of Mercedes Clinton? Oh, yes. My name is Williams, New York Police. Chief Novak is out in my car. May I come in? Oh, yes, come in. Hush, hush, Selma. <laughs> this time of day, she's cranky. Sit down, please. Thank you. Shh. What do you want? A little information about... Mercedes Clinton Turner. Whatever for? She's disappeared. Just gone? Something like that. Oh, my goodness. I know you're busy. This won't take long. When did you last see Mercedes? Oh, not in ages. Years. In high school. Then we sort of drifted apart. But you remember her well. Oh, yes. Such a beauty. Mm. <laughs> Never say that about me. I was the plain one. But we were real close friends, at least for a while. And then she went her way and I went mine. Settled down here. Uh, you ever meet her husband? Albert Turner. What kind of man is he? Quiet, when I saw him. Quiet, kind of. Uh kind that broods over things? Did he have something to brood over? Mm, might have. You think Mercy's in trouble? Real trouble? Yes. She's in a great deal of trouble. Enough to make me break my word? Mrs. Battles, if you know anything at all, you should tell me. 
Oh, mercy made me swear. Really, swear on the Bible I'd never tell a soul. Even after Daddy found out about it and broke it up. Yeah. Uh, well, Mercy was married before. Did Albert Turner know that? Well, after it was over, after her daddy broke it up, Mercy wouldn't talk about it, not a word. So I don't suppose Albert Turner did know about it. How long ago did this happen? Oh, long, long ago, years ago, it seems. Back when the Vietnam War began, back then. They ran away to get married. I was supposed to be a witness, but I couldn't go at the last minute, and they went ahead and did it anyhow. Who was the man? Who'd she marry? A boy she met in Prester. Well, she was going to school there? Must have been so long ago. I remember he was poor. And they were both awful young and so much in love. They were going to keep it a secret. Uh, what was the boy's name? His last name was Rohan. Can't recall his first name. Uh, what a pretty picture they made. In what way? Well, she was so blonde and he had red hair, flaming red hair, like he was on fire. <laughs> Hockey fans, when was the last time you saw Gordie Howe play against Bobby Hull? Now you can see hockey's two greatest superstars in action once again on Tuesday night, September 25 at 7.30 p.m. in Madison Square Garden. The New York Golden Blades, the newest professional hockey team in town, brings you this professional hockey spectacular. In September of 1973, WRVR was advertising a World Hockey Association exhibition matchup, which featured legends Gordie Howe and Bobby Hull. The New York Raiders, and later the Golden Blades, were intended to be the upstart WHA's flagship franchise. They were, however, unable to compete with the NHL's New York Rangers and the expansion New York Islanders. After just two seasons, the Golden Blades moved to San Diego. The WHA folded after eight years in 1979 with four teams, the Edmonton Oilers, Hartford Whalers, Quebec Nordiques, and Winnipeg Jets joining the NHL. Hugh drove carefully, partly because he wasn't used to being behind a wheel, and partly so he wouldn't do anything to make a policeman stop us. We drove south without even discussing why. I found myself staring at him. At the flaming red hair. The boyish face. Tired now. Worn. He must have felt me staring at him because he shifted in the seat to look at me. That's when I saw that he was still carrying the gun in his jacket pocket. Hugh? Yeah? Should you keep the gun? Shouldn't you get rid of it? Uh, no, I... I have to keep it. You'll see. See what? Well, if, uh, If anything happens, if anyone tries to stop us, break us up now that we've found each other again, I may need to use it. Because there's nothing in this world can take... can take you away from me again. Hey, remember Rehoboth Beach? Yes, of course I remember. That's where we're going. A second honeymoon, Mercy. It's winter. Will anything be open? <laughs> we don't need more than a room. And the police won't look for us there. All the police are watching for right now is a single woman. They don't know about the car, or the jersey plates in the car, or about me. We're going to have our second honeymoon, Mercy.
According to Clara Battles, Mercedes Turner had met her first husband while she was a student at the Bentley Collegiate Institute in Preston. I drove up there and then called New York to tell Scores what I'd gotten. So she may not be alone, huh? She could be traveling with this red-haired guy, Rohan. I suspect that's true. Otherwise, why did she run? Well, panic. After spending the night with her dead husband? This isn't a lady who panics. Okay, Will. I'll add him to the APB. Right. I'll be back late tonight or uh, first thing in the morning. Yeah, we'll see you then. Oh, Will. Yeah. Hold up a minute. Something just came in. Hey, what do you know? The lady went to her bank this morning, closed her account, and took a bunch of stuff from her safe deposit box. Well, it just goes to prove you can't live on love alone. See you. I pride myself on my ability as a police officer. I like my job, and I think I do it well. I've learned in the years I've been at it that a good cop gets a fix on a suspect, begins to empathize with the suspect, and pretty soon it's as though the person you're looking for was carrying a homing device. You begin to zero in on him. I began to get a feeling about the red-haired man. The Preston Town Constable steered me to a place called the Snack Bar, where the Bentley girls hang out after classes. It's run by a nice old man, Clement Beatty. How long we been here? Oh, my, we've had the place for years. You recall a young fellow hung around here back before the war? Uh, his name was Rohan. A red-haired boy? That's him. Oh, yes, yes. You was with us for about a school year. Worked here in the shop for me and the missus. Why'd you want to know? I'm trying to locate him. Where's his family live? Well, seems to me out west someplace. Oh, Middle West, maybe. Hmm. How'd he happen to work for you? Well, he was planning to go to Annexter College up in Royal. Came down here to see about a job. Mother and me leave a standing invitation, you know, register his office up there for a deserving boy to help us out. Why was he so far from home? He wanted to be a doctor. And Annexter's one of the best pre-med schools in the country, you know. Yeah. You recall a girl at Bentley about that time, Mercedes Clinton, pretty, with blonde hair? She was very close to you. Oh, yeah, sure. Was that her name, Mercedes? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, after Hugh closed the shop, the two of them used to sit back there and talk to all hours. Oh? Uh, you know, young kids in love. Yeah, I recall one night I was cleaning up in the kitchen, couldn't help overhearing them. They were making plans, you know, for the future, how he was going to be a doctor. They were going to have a family. How did it all come out? Not very well, I'm afraid. We rented a tiny cabin at Rehoboth Beach, close by the water. And that night we slept in each other's arms for the first time since you'd gone off to war. I was awakened later. I don't know what time it was. By the sound of a sudden storm. And lying there, I was aware that Hugh was also awake. Mercy? Yes, dear. Why'd you marry Turner? Did you love him? No. Not ever. I married him because... I don't know. You didn't love him? Never. In fact, for the last few months, I've hated him and wondered how to get away. But you married him. Yes, dear, I married him. Because there no longer was you, and all I wanted from life was to be protected. I didn't want love or anything anymore. 
Mercy. Yes, dear. He was right, you know. Your husband was right. About what? I was a convict. I am a convict. I escaped from prison last week. A drama unfolds every day on WRVR as Arthur Albert presents Connections. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Quaxer Fortune has a cousin in the Bronx. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. And you do have a friend at Chase Manhattan. But you have a real chum in Arthur Albert, the only three-foot-seven-inch telephone talk show host in New York who doesn't mind being Jewish. You simply mustn't miss Connections every weekday morning at 11, because when you do, Arthur misses you. Three-foot-seven-inch people are sensitive, and even though Arthur is paranoid and occasionally forgets what he's talking about, his program is the stuff that life is made of. And having ended a sentence in a preposition, I rest my case. Connections is heard weekdays at 11 a.m. on WRVR. This offer is void where prohibited, including certain parts of Boise, Idaho. ¿Qué pasa? What's happening? My name is Felipe Luciano. We got a program called Latin Roots every Sunday from 1 to 6. Why don't you tune into us and hear some of the baddest funk in the United States? Que viva la música. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes. And listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. This week, in Bill S. Ballinger's The Wife of the Red-Haired Man, Hattie Duke Aston is Mercedes, John Aston is Rohan, and Howard Duff is Detective Williams. Featured in the cast are Harold Gould as Detective Scores, Carl Swenson as Novak, Tyler McVeigh as Clinton, Mary Jane Croft as Clara, and Jerry Hausner as Beatty. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is the executive producer, and Karen Lee Cohen, associate producer. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow, and once again, rest your eyes. And listen here to the Zero Hour. Van Jay here. And I'm What's Going On Here from Midnight to 6 a.m. Jazz Bar Request is the name of the gig. And I'm here to fill your jazz request at 106.7 FM. That's RVR, your jazz and talk station.
This is a CBS News special report. President chooses. I'm Bruce Morton, CBS News, Washington. And what the president is choosing, of course, is a running mate. Here are the ruffles and flourishes. Hail to the chief is next, and uh, so is the president. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States and Mrs. Nixon. A year after his re-election, President Nixon was knee-deep in the Watergate scandal. On October 10, 1973, VP Spiro Agnew resigned, pleading no contest to charges of tax evasion and money laundering, part of a negotiated resolution to a scheme in which he accepted nearly $30,000 in bribes while governor of Maryland. According to the New York Times, Nixon sought advice from senior congressional leaders about a replacement. The advice was unanimous in favor of Gerald Ford. Ford agreed to the nomination, telling his wife that the vice presidency would be a nice conclusion to his career. On October 12th, President Nixon officially named Gerald Ford as VP. Distinguished guest here in the East Room and my fellow Americans. I have invited you here tonight so that I could share with all of you, not only in this room, but the millions listening on television and radio, my announcement of the man whose name I shall submit to the Congress tomorrow for confirmation as Vice President of the United States. I shall ask the Congress tonight, and also when I submit the name tomorrow, to act as expeditiously as possible on this nomination because of the great challenges we face at home and abroad today. We live at a time in which we face great dangers, but also a time of very great opportunities. The energy crisis was becoming a major issue. Nixon assured the public, saying Americans wouldn't be running out of gasoline, air travel wouldn't stop, and heating oil would be plentiful in the winter months, though the crisis would require some sacrifice on everyone's part. He outlined a plan which included using less heat, less gasoline, and cutting down on highway speeds, as well as cutting down on lighting at home and at work. General consensus felt things would get worse before they got better. To build not only for ourselves but for all the world is now threatened because of a new outbreak of war in the Mideast. And also, we must recognize the fact that the prosperity that we seek is plagued by an inflation which is a burden on the family budget of millions of Americans. Meanwhile, on November 10th, a ceasefire was achieved in the Middle East. A tenuous agreement was reached between Egypt and Israel, putting an end to the military conflict. Because the hope of the world for peace lies with the leadership that we have here in the United States of America. And our ability to build a new prosperity in this country, a prosperity without war and without inflation, lies in the need for strong leadership in the United States of America. Never in our history has the world more needed a strong America, a united America, with both the power and the will to act in the spirit that made this a great country and that has kept it a free country. By the middle of November, the Nixon White House sought to put a positive spin on things, launching what was called the President Fights for His Administration's Credibility. Nixon's dwindling support from Capitol Hill Republicans caused him to make a round of addresses, primarily in Republican stronghold cities, in order to reiterate his case and help approval. The reviews were mixed. Some thought it was a valiant attempt to rescue a bad situation. 
while others were more convinced than ever that Nixon needed to step down. Challenges we face, seizing the opportunities for greatness and meeting the dangers wherever they are at home or abroad. And I'm confident tonight as I stand here before leaders of both parties, I'm confident we shall meet those dangers and also seize those opportunities. I am confident that we shall do so, but we can and will do so only if we have the support of millions of our fellow Americans all across this land. We can and will do so only if we have bipartisan support in the Congress of the United States in matters in which no partisanship should ever enter. And we can and will do so only if we have strong, effective leadership in the executive branch of this government. These were the considerations that I had in mind as I considered what man or other individual to select as the nominee for Vice President of the United States. Let me tell you what the criteria were that I had in mind. First, and above all, the individual who serves as vice president must be qualified to be president. And second, the individual who serves as vice president of the United States must be one who shares the views of the president on the critical issues of foreign policy and national defense, which is so important if we are to play our great role, our destined role, to keep peace in the world. And third, at this particular time when we have the executive in the hands of one party and the Congress controlled by another party, it is vital that the Vice President of the United States be an individual who can work with members of both parties in the Congress in getting approval for those programs of the administration which we consider are vital for the national interest. It was these criteria that I had in mind when I pondered this decision last night and early this morning in the quiet beauty of Camp David. And the man I have selected meets those three criteria. First, he is a man who has served for 25 years in the House of Representatives with great distinction. Gerald Ford's colleagues are on their feet applauding. And uh, obviously that reference was to the minority leader, Gerald Ford. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Please don't be premature. There are several here who served 25 years in the House of Representatives. <laughs> 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 
In addition to that service in the House, I should point out that in that period of time, he has earned the respect of both Democrats and Republicans. It was not easy. I mean, you could just anybody no, couldn't do radio. You had to be a very quick study. And in fact, I think it's too bad now that the young kids don't have the opportunity of working in radio. It was a great training ground. Because mm -hmm. it was so mm -hmm. great as a training ground. I mean, we worked in front of audiences. We had a sense of comedy timing. You know, the audiences would tell us. We, um, we, worked, we had to be such quick studies. We had to be able to pick up a script. I remember one time I got a call uh, for a silver theater. And the actress who had played the starring role opposite a Kirk Douglas had um, panicked. She was in pictures, oh. and, and she was a foreign actress. She had an accent, <laughs> and so she was very insecure about having, you know, to do mm -hmm. it with so mm -hmm. little rehearsal. And they called me, and I had to go and be there and on the air within about 20 minutes and, you know, read it cold. And it was a great challenge, but it was very exciting. <laughs> yeah. There's such an excitement about um, radio and the nostalgic feeling about radio. And even now, when I go to New York, and, in, you know, I don't know where they come from, but those autograph people, you know, who are outside of Sardis in New York, uh -huh. they always come and say, hey, you know, you did Corliss Archer. Can I have your autograph? They remember radio. Are you ready for the ultimate test? Are you safe? The time is now on the Hollywood Radio Theater. This is the Zero Hour. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater, presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's best-selling novel of the pursuit of a damned couple. The wife of the red-haired man. Starring Patty Dugaston. John Astor. Howard Duff. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. I'm Les Davis. Hey, listen, if you're gonna go, go first class. WRVR in New York at 106.7 FM. Join me here weeknights at 8. No one needs a carved gourd from Upper Volta or a basket from the Cameroons. No one needs a horse blanket made in Niger by nomads for camels. No one needs a batik painting from Ghana or a crimson dashiki. But some people want to surround themselves with the beauty, the craftsmanship of a unique heritage. For those people, there's Ashanti Bazaar, 872 Lexington Avenue at 65th Street. 
Ashanti is African, and African is special. The colors are vibrant, the fashions flowing, the jewelry hammered and polished to brilliance. At Ashanti, there's a beautiful bracelet of amber and antique sterling beads made in Mali and a perfect gift for someone with a lot of style. At Ashanti, there's a splendid caftan of handwoven cloth in vibrant blues of West Indian design and a perfect present to give yourself. Because you've got a lot of style, you're where Ashanti Bazaar is at, 65th and Lexington. Hugh Rohan, supposedly killed in Vietnam, returns after an absence of seven years to find his wife remarried to Albert Turner. In a confrontation, Rohan, the red-haired man, panics and kills Turner. Mercedes Turner, still in love with Rohan, flees with him. She hurriedly gathers money and her jewels, buys a car, and then to escape New York and drive to Delaware. Two detectives, Williams from the 19th Precinct and Scores from Homicide, are assigned to the case. Williams finds that Mercedes Turner was secretly married to Hugh Rohan before her second unhappy marriage to Albert Turner. However, he doesn't know it was Rohan who shot Turner, nor is he yet aware that the fugitive Rohan even exists. But first, this word. How would you like to win one of the world's most exciting tape decks? The $1,000 four-channel TIAC 3340S. The TIAC tape deck that is just about every feature of a professional recording studio. Well, you may if you enter the FM Guide TIAC four-channel sweepstakes. FM Guide, the monthly magazine which brings you in advance the best of the greater New York area's FM radio programs, wants to award you the incomparable TIAC 3340S. The drawing will be held in New York City on October 1st, and you don't have to be present to win. Just pick up a copy of FM Guide's September issue at any newsstand, write your name and address on the cover, or a facsimile, and send it to TIAC Contest, care of FM Guide, 1290 Avenue of the Americas, New York 1019. That's TIAC, 3340S, care of FM Guide, 1290 Avenue of the Americas, New York 1019. You could be the winner. to New York late at night after my Connecticut scouting expedition. I found that Mercedes Turner and a young red-haired man named Hugh Rohan had been in love and had gotten married. This confirmed my growing feeling that someone had been with Mercedes Turner when her husband had been murdered. Someone who was with her now as she ran from us. In the morning, Scores was waiting for me with additional medical examiner reports. Albert Turner was shot with a 32. One shot through the heart. Mm. Anything on that carpet stain? The one in the living room? Sterner's blood, all right. So that's where he was shot. Fingerprints? Well, someone cleaned up pretty well, the lab boys feel. You don't say. Yeah, they lifted prints on Turner, the maid, Mrs. Turner, some unidentifieds. But the doorknob, bar surface, phone, all clean of any prints. Hmm. That it? No, one thing more. They picked up a strand of red hair. Texture indicates it's a man's. Now, Thelma Jordan can't recall any visitor to the apartment who had red hair. Yeah. Now, where did I put that number in there? Yeah. What's up, Will? Maybe on to something. Get on the other phone. Right. Hello? Uh, Miss Battles? Yes? 
Uh, this is Detective Williams from the New York City Police. I spoke oh, to you Mr. yesterday. Mr. Williams, the paper says murder. You didn't say anything about murder. Mrs. Battles, tell me. After Mercedes' father annulled her marriage to Hugh Rohan, what happened to Rohan? Uh, the war happened. He went to Vietnam. And what then? I don't know. I guess he got killed over there. Why do you say that? Because Mercy loved you no matter how her father felt. If she remarried, it was because you, Rohan, was killed in the war. All right, Miss Battles. Uh, uh, thank you for your help. Hmm. We found a strand of red hair belongs to a ghost. Yeah, right. On the phone yesterday, you said she went to the bank first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Withdrew $4,500 cash. Collected maybe 50 grand in jewels from her safe deposit box. We got a description from the insurance company. And her mink coat, another uh, eight or nine grand? Yeah, probably. All right, send a description of the jewelry to all jewelry stores and pawnbrokers within two days' drive of here. And check out the sale of every new or used car within a couple of hours' drive from here. You think she bought a car? Yes, and I think she's going to start selling her jewels, and I think she's got a red-haired male companion. The ghost, huh? Right, right. I think she's traveling with a ghost. We woke to clear, sunny skies, and Hugh seemed more cheerful than the night before. I wanted him to tell me more about what he'd said. That he was a convict. An escaped convict. Whenever I tried to ask him, he'd sense what I was about to say and avoid me. After breakfast, we left, drove to Fredericksburg, where we were married. Then we found another small vacation cottage nearly deserted by the season. Come inside. Hugh, what you told me last night. No. I'm not going to ask you any more about it. You'll tell me what happened when you want to. Or not at all. I love you. I have since the day we met. I always will, no matter what. Oh, mercy. Mercy. Look, someday I'll tell you. Someday, but but not just now, not yet. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cry on our wedding day. Well, you did last time. <laughs> yeah, I did. Because I was so happy. Come on, let's go inside. Not yet. I want to drive to the drugstore. What you told me last night what the police might have found. We have to do something about your red hair. Yes. Then even if they're looking for two people, it won't be us. I'll be right back. You wait inside. <coughs> Janet Waldo, famous for her portrayal of Corliss Archer, as well as Judy Jetson, Penelope Pitstop, and Emmy Lou on The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, was featured in this episode of The Zero Hour. Well, I did a lot of, oh gosh, <laughs> well, actually, let's say it was radio. I did, I did some little theater, and I did some other uh -huh. things before radio, but the first radio show that I was on, actually, was Lux Radio Theater, and I played a bit on that, and I worked with um, Jerry Hausner and Hans Conried, who are very uh, well-known radio people and have gone on to television, and uh, 
I remember thinking, gee, this must be a crazy business because Hans Conried <laughs> had one green sock on and one red sock. <laughs> I remember and, that. And Jerry Hausner kept teasing me about taking, uh, he said, you know, they're getting younger every day coming into radio. They're taking jobs away from um, men with families. And it took me about two weeks before I realized that a man with a family couldn't have played my part, you know. <laughs> but I mean, I thought, gee, everybody in radio is crazy. And then I realized after I worked in radio that there's no medium as wonderful as radio. I think the people in radio uh, excel people in any other medium. They were, it was kind of like a big family, wasn't it, Sam? Yes, it was. <clears throat> and I don't blame there being nostalgia for radio because it was a wonderful era. Mm -hmm. Also in Ozzie and Harriet, I was supposed to say, and they were talking about the stock market, and I was supposed to say, oh, you know, hi, Mr. Nell, are you a bull or a bear? But, you know, I didn't know anything about the stock market, and I don't know what, my vision was good, I don't know what the problem was, but I said, hi, Mr. Nelson, are you a bull or a deer? And he said, you know, there was this kind of beat, and then he said, I didn't know what I'd said wrong, and he said, uh, well, Emmy Lou, I'm really a bull, but you can call me deer if you want <laughs> I'm not a man who believes in ghosts. I recognize that things happen which can't be explained, and I accept the fact that not everything is written out in capital letters so even a small child will understand. But when the lab finds a single red hair from a male human, then a male human with red hair was in the room where that hair was found. Yet all our information led us to the conclusion that the man in question was dead. But there was still an unexamined part of Mercedes Turner's life. Neighbors named Layton, who lived in the apartment above. Well, you can imagine our surprise. We'd been up in New Hampshire skiing, and we hadn't heard any news. And then on the way home today, we heard about it on the radio. How well did you know the Turners? Oh, casually. You know, you see them in the elevator and say hello, or they get out of a cab you get into. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Turner was shot Thursday night. I believe uh, you were here in town then. Yeah, we didn't leave until Friday afternoon. Well, sometime around midnight. We're not sure the exact time. Did you hear a revolver shot? My husband's a perfectionist about his hi-fi. We wouldn't have heard anything because this apartment's soundproofed. Uh-huh. What did you... What did you think of the Turners as people? Uh, as a couple? Mrs. Turner is a beautiful woman. I don't know about him. Oh? Polite enough in the hall and lobby, but I never really liked him. Mm. Had a feeling he could be pretty unpleasant if he wanted. On the day of the shooting or that night... Did you see any strangers around the building? Oh, in New York, everyone's a stranger. How do you remember them? Only if they're acting suspiciously or someone's different. Uh, for instance, last Thursday in this neighborhood, did you see a man with red hair? Real red hair. Well, yes, I saw him. What was he doing? Walking down East Vanders in the rain. That's all, just walking and looking around as if he were searching for an address. Dying Hugh's hair brown changed his appearance remarkably. But very subtly, his attitude had also begun to change. Perhaps it was because my memories were of a younger, more innocent time. When the future was spread safely before us, ours for the taking. But by the time we left Fredericksburg, he'd become shifty, suspicious. I was driving. Richmond, Virginia. Why didn't we stay where we were? What was wrong with Fredericksburg? We can't stay in one place too long, and we're too close to New York, and we need money. What's needing money got to do with driving to Richmond? 
I have to begin selling my jewelry, Hugh. I don't want to do it in the same town where we were married. You're smart. I worked, you know, while you were gone. I had a good job before I married Albert. I made decisions. I functioned on an executive level. Better being stuck with me, is that what you mean? No, that's not what I mean. I love you. You know that. You must know that. Why, why else are we together? We're going to stay together. I'll take care of anyone who comes between us again. In Richmond, I found a company, the Dixie Jewelers, which bought and sold old jewelry. The man was nice and honest, but I was shocked at what I received from my cluster diamond earrings. How much did you get? $600. They were insured for $3,500. Where are we going now? You decide. You tell me where you think we should go. Mexico? We can get into Mexico and live there together. They'd never find us. Do you speak Spanish? No. Well, I don't either. You'd be terribly conspicuous. Well, then you decide. You pick a place. Just so we're together, that's all I want. That's all that's ever mattered to me. Do you think everything's gonna be all right? Why do you ask? Aren't you sure? I don't know. I'm no longer sure of anything. Those years and all those years, they take it away from you. Police work takes a lot of sweat and a bit of luck. We got our first break because New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut cooperate closely on car information. A woman answering Mercedes Turner's description had bought a used car in Jersey City, Jersey Plates. When we checked out the name and address she'd given for transfer of title, we found there was no such person and no such address. A teletype to the Delaware State Bridge Authority brought us further information. A trooper remembered the car because it was driven by a man with flaming red hair. The car had crossed the bridge at the end of the Jersey Turnpike. From there, it might have gone into Delaware, Maryland, or Virginia. I put out the car description and the Jersey plate numbers. Good. So there really is a red-haired man, huh? No ghost, a real-life person. Hugh Rohan. I checked the registrar at his college. Annexter? Right. Got his records. Applied for entrance 1964 pre-med. Excellent grades, high school, Germain, Illinois. Lacking credits in Latin and chemistry, admission denied. Which is an unusual for students from small-town high schools. Well, how'd he make it up? Tutoring, usually. And that's what happened to Rowan, huh? Well, he didn't have the chance. Wasn't in school, so he was eligible for the draft. Oh, lousy. Instead of going to Annexter, Rohan went to Vietnam. Well, I was there for most, not all, but most of the sessions. I would go in and meet the performers quite a bit. You know, I don't remember socializing with Elliot or that kind of stuff. I don't know that we had any major personal time together. It was a fairly hectic schedule, but it was, but we got it done. Uh, several months later, after we were off the ground and there was a lot of publicity and all this kind of stuff, I get a call from AFTRA. They said, would you mind coming in? We'd like to meet with you. And I, so I go in and sit down and got a bunch of people around the table and boardroom thing and 
well, you know, we quoted you this, but now that you're a success, you know, you should be paying more, and here's what we think you ought to be doing, and it was, it was that kind of conversation. And anyway, all the, the union kind of stuff, although we were an AFTRA, we were doing it as an AFTRA signatory, they were writing new rules or trying to get me to agree to a different financial model, and my entrepreneurial thing was kicking in. I said, here I created this thing, I've, you know, new jobs, all these people get whatever, and I was maybe very disillusioned. Now, keep in mind, I was relatively young. I hadn't been all the minefields that you end up going through, so mm-hmm. I was a little bit naive as well, but nevertheless, I was disillusioned. I said, hey, you, know, you know, the hell with it. With AFTRA's moving goalposts meaning that producing more episodes of the Zero Hour would cost significantly more money, in the fall of 1973, Jay Kolos had to look for either a potential production partner or a buyer. In the meantime, the Zero Hour continued to air in syndication over stations like WRVR in New York. We drove all day under a sky the color of gray worsted. Occasionally, the wind tore narrow rifts through the overcast for a watery sun to peep through. We stayed that night at a motel. Our room was as impersonal as a rented locker. We tried having a drink to help us forget everything that had happened. It didn't work. Are you sorry you came? No. I had to come. You can't be sorry for what had to be. dark out. Yes. What are you listening for? Do you believe in, uh, in extrasensory perception? I don't know. Sometimes, maybe. But it'd take a lot of proving. I had a feeling this afternoon, a sudden... Uh, sort of peculiar, odd, like like intuition. A message said, the chase has started. They're looking for a couple. There's no way you can know that. Oh, yes. Yes, there is. The cons used to talk about it. I, I didn't believe it, but I do now. No. There's no way you know that's true. It's... Like telepathy, as if as if some cop's thoughts are being transmitted to me. Not all the time, just now and then. Just a little bit, now and then. Where are you going? There's a car parked out there. Michigan plates. I'm going to get rid of our Jersey ones. the records and Rohan's prints from his army induction. He disappeared on a patrol in Vietnam in 1965. Missing in action, presumed dead. Mm-hmm. We got anything on our wanted flyers? I think we did, Will. A couple of days before Albert Turner was shot, three cons broke out of Bodo Prison in Canada. Now, two of them were recaptured, but one is still at large. And that one's got red hair. What name? 
John Red Cargill, Siemens Papers. Three to ten for false passport, illegal entry, and smuggling. He'd served seven when he split. Cargill's prints match Rohan's. Picture of Cargill? Correspondence Bureau received a telephoto copy of him from Montreal. Right here. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. I knew he looked like this. Good features, clean cut, sensitive mouth, eyes. I could see him in my mind. Yeah. Guy like that, seven years in prison. <laughs> He'd probably crack open pretty easy. But, well, the trouble is, we, we don't really know if he shot Albert Turner. Rohan and the Clinton girl were married when they were kids. Their old man annulled the marriage. Wait a minute. When the woman's safety deposit was opened... The... What's the matter? What's bugging you? This list of contents. Insurance policies, empty silk jewel case, title to co-op. Uh, here we are. Why would she keep an empty envelope? Well, probably she didn't bother to throw it out. Or maybe there was a return address on it. Who are you calling? Banners, DA's office. Find out if there's a name and address on that envelope. We didn't stop again until we reached Kansas City. We had run from the Atlantic to the Midlands. Hugh's mood varied from moment to moment. Sometimes he was cheerful and optimistic, and I had hopes against my better sense that perhaps something would work out for us. But then he'd plunge into gloom and despair. And try as I might, I, I could see no future for us except to run until we were caught. Perhaps he felt the same way in that tiny Kansas City hotel room. Oh, Hugh, please put that gun away. I need it. Reminds me of prison. What I may need to do so I don't go back there. You have to get rid of it. It's direct evidence. I won't let matters get that far. Why did you marry Turner? I told you why. You were gone so long. I tried to convince myself that I didn't love you anymore. But the moment you came back, it was the same way it had always been. Isn't that enough? But now you're... What do you think... What are you thinking? That I'm different? That I'm not the same? We've both changed, darling. I no longer know what you think or feel either. Both of us together. Possibly we can make one whole person. and the DA's office gave me the name on the empty envelope we'd found in Mercedes Turner's safety deposit box, Sayer and Bates' attorneys. I talked to Arnold Bates, the junior partner. He was very cooperative. He told me he'd handled an Enoch Arden decree for Mercedes Clinton against Hugh Rohan not quite two years earlier. The marriage had been secret, and Mercedes Clinton Rohan had wanted the decree kept secret. Her father was an old man in poor health, and she hadn't heard from her husband Hugh in seven years. He was presumed dead. You mean they were married a second time. Right. After Lyman Clinton had the first marriage annulled, they were married again secretly, just before Rohan was sent to Vietnam. Where he goes out on a patrol and disappears. To surface again in a Canadian jail under another name. Uh-huh. Well, whatever names they use, Will, we got a description, we got his prints, and we know their car. We're gonna get him. Yes, I think we will. 
Any reports on the jewelry? Not yet. Keep after it. They're going to need money. Tonight, the temperature for Kansas City and vicinity should dip to 39 degrees. It will be cloudy tomorrow with a chance of snow flurries. How long are we going to stay here? Oh, another day or so. Got to move on. Get out of the country. We need money to do that. Hugh, don't the police get reports on pawned articles? Yeah. So I've heard. Instead of pawning my things... I'll run an ad in the paper and sell them myself. That's dangerous. No, I don't think so. Kansas City is a big place. The police won't pay any attention to a newspaper ad. And then we'll move on? Yes. Hugh, I promised I wouldn't ask you about prison, and I'll keep that promise. I don't want to talk about it. But we must get out of the country. To do that, we'll need passports. Well? Do you know anyone? Someone who could get us passports? In prison, I knew... We have to leave the country. Yeah. Yeah. I know someone who might. But uh, it's expensive. We'll get the money. We have to buy passports. I think we've run as far as we can. I have personal reasons for wearing this mask. Mm. Now, I'm telling you. No, I'm not an outlaw. Get up, come get on, up, get up. Get up. Oh, 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 now, easy. That's for trying to draw a sneak gun. No, Toto. Toto and I moved back into the timber ways. Okay. Bartender? Yes, sir? How'd you like to peek under my mask? Listen to The Lone Ranger Tuesday night, partner, at 7.30 on RVR. This time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. Listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. This week, in Bill S. Ballinger's The Wife of the Red-Haired Man, Patty Duke Aston is Mercedes, John Aston is Rohan, and Howard Duff is Detective Williams. Featured in the cast are Harold Gould as Detective Scores, Mary Jane Croft as Clara, Janet Waldo as Mrs. Layton, and Ruth Ashton Taylor as the Weather Girl. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is the executive producer, and Karen Lee Cohn, associate producer. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme 
was played by Ferranti and Teicher. It's now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow, and once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. is on WRVR. RVR's got lots of jazz. The jazz place is RVR. Jazzy people listen to us. RVR is jazz. And jazz is in. Jazz is on WRVR. In the morning. In the evening. Have we got jazz? Yeah. This is Van Jay reminding you that you're listening to Jazz and Talk Radio. WRVR in New York. 106.7 on your FM dial. WRVR presents a Festival of Old Radio. Each weeknight at this time, WRVR presents a classic radio drama to give you an experience in imagination. I herded lambs beyond the village on the lee. The magic of the sun, perhaps, or what was it, affected me. I felt with joy all overcome, as though with God. A rover operator, Ilya Zakharov, authorization number 00461 of the Lunar Agricultural Expedition Program. The time for lunch had long passed by, and still among the weeds I lay, and prayed to God, I know not why. It was so pleasant then to pray. Phantom Nine, initialize. But not for long the sun stayed kind. Not long in bliss I prayed. Phantom Nine, initialized. It turned into a ball of fire and set the world ablaze. As though just wakened up I gaze the hamlet's drab and poor. And God's blue heavens, even they, are glorious no more. Ilya! Don't let it see you! From Denouncer Media comes a brand new experience in audio horror. Red Odyssey. Starring Alison Cossett, Peter Wicks, Sarah Golding, Erica Sanderson, James Scully, Peter Wyshynski, and Brandon Levine. Red Odyssey, a Lovecraftian horror story you will never forget. Coming September 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.
And it is a great pleasure to have Elliot Lewis, who did just about anything you can do in radio. Starred in many suspense broadcasts, bit parts in others, directed the show. There was an anecdote on Gunsmoke where uh, the agency band was sitting up in the booth or something, and there was a line in the script that said uh, where Matt Dillon was supposed to have said, well, we're lucky that didn't happen. And he, and he just went through the roof. He said, well, you can't have the word lucky on a show that's sponsored by Chesterfield. That's the kind of thing we're talking about, where agencies and sponsors and, and so forth just really should butt out and not be involved in We that. had one like that when I was producing the Lucy show at a Christmas show. Agency man is sitting there at the dress rehearsal. End of the Christmas show, group of child singers arrive at the door to sing a carol. And Lucy opens the door and says, oh, come in, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, lovely closing. And they go, joy to the world. And the agency man went right through the roof, because that was a competing product. Mm. Joy. Incredible. You know. So if you're dealing with what we used to call the League of Frightened Men, all the people that are afraid to have opinions or, or have judgments or allow anybody else to have them, for fear of rocking the boat. Well, that's a devastating uh, series of words. The League of Frightened Men. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what we always used to call them. You know. I used to have a, a cup on my desk that, that I kept pencils in, and I had painted on it a famous Fred Allen line, which is, Where were you when the page was blank? Your jazz and talk station. I'm Les Davis, and I get in on the music end of it. Weeknights at 8 p.m. I'm much cooler than Brett Reed. Are you ready for the ultimate test? Are you safe? The time is now on the Hollywood Radio Theater. This is The Zero Hour. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents. I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to the Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's best-selling novel, The Pursuit of a Damned Couple. The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. Starring Patty Dugaston. John Astor. Howard Duff. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour.
This is WRVR 106.7 FM in New York. Hugh Rohan has returned after having been missing for seven years to find his wife Mercedes married to Albert Turner. In a confrontation, Rohan panics and kills Turner. Mercedes, still in love with the red-haired man, flees with him, paying for their escape by selling her jewels. As their flight continues, Rohan subtly changes, losing his assurance, his confidence, even much of his ability to make decisions. Assigned to the case are two New York City detectives, Scores of Homicide and Williams of the 19th Precinct. They have been painstakingly putting together the puzzle of Albert Turner's murder by tracing Mercedes Turner and Hugh Rohan's earlier life. Their trail has taken them from New York to Connecticut to Virginia. But first, this word. The bazaar with pizzazz that's definitely African is called Ashanti. Ashanti at 65th and Lexington, where folks with flair shop. We bought a pair of uh, bracelets. I understand that they're West Indian. They have uh, some very delicate work in the silver. And I think my wife's going to enjoy them very, very much. When people come home from a trip, they almost always bring you a gift, and we've decided to reverse the procedure and have a gift waiting for her. Buy someone you love a gift from Ashanti. Time is what's needed in police work. Time for lab work, time to check out clues, time to find witnesses. Time to get replies to the hundreds of flyers that are put out to locate stolen or missing property. Two weeks after Albert Turner's murder, the Missing Property Bureau called me regarding a batch of jewelry bought by a New York wholesaler. One of the items was a pair of diamond cluster earrings sold to the New York outfit by a shop in Richmond, Virginia. The earrings were those described by the insurance company as belonging to Mercedes Turner, part of the jewelry she'd taken from her safe deposit box the morning after her husband's murder. I flew down to Richmond to talk to a man named Town who'd bought the earrings from the Turner woman. If you'd uh, look at this sketch, please, Mr. Town. Does the woman seem familiar to you? Hmm. Uh, yes, sir, it looks like her, sort of. But, uh, you know, the first gentleman I talked to in New York mentioned the name Turner. The lady I wrote out a check to was a Mrs. Brewer. As soon as the check clears, I'd like a copy of her endorsement. Compare it with our suspect's handwriting. Make sure we've got the right person. All right. I'd be pleased to help you. How'd the lady react to the money you gave her? Was she disappointed, you suggested? Mm. <laughs> she was indeed. But then they always are, you know. Person don't take into account markup and resale prices and so on and so on. She was disappointed, I'd say. But she accepted your offer. Oh, yes, yes. We've a good reputation, whether she knew it or not. I offered her a fair price, and after a few minutes of debating with herself, she accepted the check. Was she alone, or was there a man with her? She was alone, sir. If someone was with her, he stayed outside because she was alone. We stayed in Kansas City while I advertised that my jewelry and mink coat were for sale. Where he had wanted to run, to move constantly. Now, without explanation, he changed and seemed content to stay. Not content, perhaps, but at least no longer argumentative. Then one evening, we were sitting in our room having a drink together. 
when suddenly he began to talk about what had happened. Stupid. You see, I always wanted to be a doctor. All my life, to help people, not kill them. Well, you know, in a war, you see things. There are things you have to do. Terrible things, brutal, awful things. The army reported you missing in action. Then after a few years, they told me you were presumed dead. Well, what happened was, see, this one day, we were out on a search and destroy. I was on one flank, and it was all quiet and pretty. I remember a jet, a passenger jet, Air France, I think, flying overhead, filled with civilians going about their peaceful business. And... What happened that day, honey? All hell broke loose. I don't know. They, they must have been waiting for us. I got separated. I, I, I couldn't find anyone. The air was black. Men screaming. Did you ever hear a man scream in pain? No. You see, it's, it's, it's not that I was yellow, but... All that blood and terror, pain. I left there. I, I, I just wandered off. The army didn't find you? No, no way. It was like an animal crawling through the jungle, hiding, afraid for my life. Somehow, I, I, I don't know how, I, I got to the coast, to where the merchant ships were anchored, waiting to get into the harbor and unload. That's where I met Cargill. Merchant seaman on the Java shore, an old tanker. He told me he'd give me his papers and get me a berth on an outgoing freighter to Montreal if I'd help him. Uh, help him how? Well, he wanted me to deliver some uncut rubies to a fence there. Do you, do you understand? I, I, you see, I, I didn't do it for money, not for anything, except to get away from there and, and get, get home, home to you. That's all I wanted. Do you understand? Yes, Hugh. Of course. But how... Exactly. How? That's where it all comes apart. I was caught before I made the delivery. Cargill hadn't given me a package of rubies. I was carrying heroin. Didn't you tell the police? No, no, no. I kept Cargill's papers and shut up. You see, I, I thought I'd served my time and not tell anyone, not even you, till it was over. And then we could go away somewhere, and I, I'd take another name, I'd study medicine, and, and be a doctor the way I always wanted. Look at me, Mercy. Yes, dear. Is it too late? I don't know. You don't blame me? No. In New Orleans, there's a man who can get us passports, but it, it, it's expensive. We'll sell more jewelry. And someone will buy the coat. He's after us, you know. Who? A cop. I told you, I know when he's onto something, it's, it's like the two of us are connected. Hugh, he... He may be after us. We don't know what they found out. I'm gonna paint the car blue. And 
Gonna get another set of plates. I'll be back. One of the radio veterans featured in this episode was Byron Kane. It was all on-the-job training. It started in that backyard of Richard Pettuccini when I said to my other friend, oh yes, I will go over. I walked over to KMPC against the wall with high Aberback, and away I went. That was really the first thing. Why I was able to do it, I can only say Mother Nature gave me that gift. I was. I have theories, of course, about acting, and as, as many years have passed, I've talked to younger actors and new told me about their desires and their systems and the methods and the things, and I could go on for hours about that. I think a fine actor or actress, I believe I know, a fine actor or actress is born. You don't learn to be a fine actress. You can learn on the job and learn tricks. Oh my God, the mistakes I've made, of course, of course. But the Lorene Tuttles, whoever, however she started, no one has to tell me. She was born, and I could go to the list of the people that you could remind me of that I've forgotten. Another was Paula Winslow. My claim to fame is that Clark Gable asked for me to be his leading lady. Oh, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> and what, and two or three on, times. On Silver Theater? Or yeah, other, other on part? Silver Theater. Uh-huh. I was very thrilled. That's pretty good. <laughs> yes, it was pretty good. <laughs> and was he really a lady killer? He was a very nice man. He never made any kind of overtures to anybody. Mm-hmm. He was just a big, good Kind of a man's man, you mm-hmm. know. No, he was and very nice. And kept, you know, very nice, not uh, an actory kind of man at all. Everybody liked him, you know, men and women. Was he comfortable with radio? Uh, he seemed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them were quite nervous. Did you do many doubling yes, like that? Did you I do did. much of that? Mm-hmm. Different type of voice? Yes. You did many Yes, I did everything from babies to... Claudette Colbert's grandmother. <laughs> oh, yeah. When I was, you know, young, I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Did you do a baby cry? Is that, were you one of the I criers? I, I wasn't. <clears throat> the best baby crier was a Mary Lansing. Uh-huh. She was an awfully good baby crier. Some of us did. I have done it, but I wasn't. But she was the... There were people who were sort of known for things, and mm-hmm. Mary was the best baby crier. She was marvelous. We would support the stars. Mm-hmm. If they would have, for instance, if Betty Davis did Dark Victory, mm-hmm. I did the part that Geraldine Fitzgerald did in the picture, you know, the second yeah. lead. Uh-huh. And then sometimes we'd do a lead opposite one of the stars. Mm-hmm. After we recover the earrings, I guess Mercedes Turner would confine future sales to private parties. If she'd been as upset as the jeweler described her over not receiving a retail price for her merchandise, she'd advertise and take her chance on private buyer sales. That would also apply to her fur coat. One thing for sure, they were going to need all the money they could get their hands on to keep running. I judged they might have gone south from Richmond, but figured it was more likely they'd head west to get as far away as possible from New York. I arranged with the Bureau of Information to subscribe to a clipping service covering 18 cities. Places like Louisville, Kansas City, St. Louis... Oklahoma City, through the area where I figured they'd most likely be. We wanted to look in the personal columns of those local newspapers at items for sale. There was a three-day lag before the first clippings arrived. Scores and I began wading through a box of the stuff. Oh, boy. 
Never realized so many people had so much stuff for sale. Wearing you down, huh? Well, it's beginning to, Will. Well, look at this. Watches for sale. Also necklaces, bracelets, pendants, brooches, earrings. <laughs> Anything your heart desires is from sale, coast to coast. And this. Mink coat. Turner woman had a mink coat. And they were addressing me here, just the Jefferson Hotel, Kansas City, room 1417, and the hotel phone number. You suppose it's them? Bless area codes. No way you can tell where the devil the call's coming from. You're nervous, Will. Yep. Good morning, Jefferson Hotel. Uh, room 1417, please. Will you hold? That line is busy. Uh, yes, I'll wait. They ringing? Yeah, room phone's busy. I'm on hold. Why don't you pick up the extension? Yeah. can ring your party now. Thank you. Hello. Room 1417? Yes. You the party offering a mink coat for sale? Uh, no. Well, there was an ad last Sunday's newspaper advertising a fur coat for sale. No, I don't know anything about it. I just checked in last night. Sorry. Well, uh, get the hotel operator for me again, will you please? Yeah, sure. Operator, may I help you? Yes, operator. This is the New York police. Uh, who was the party checked out of room 1417 yesterday? Uh, one moment, sir. I'll check that for you. You think it was them, huh? Almost sure. Uh, sir, the party registered as Mr. and Mrs. Y.V. Garfield, North Sneedham Drive, Detroit, Michigan. Thank you, operator. Okay, I'll check it out with Detroit. Eight, five, and even, they're phony. I'll get some more information from the Kansas City cops. We stayed longer in Kansas City than we planned. We moved from hotel to hotel, running ads in the paper, and I sold off my jewelry piece by piece. Winter held Missouri in a bleak embrace. The city tried to cheer itself with holiday decorations. Strings of lights and vivid displays from the plaza to the downtown area. But the approach of Christmas brought little joy to Hugh or me. It was then that he began to disappear for hours at a time. I assumed he was walking or reading in the library. Anything to be out of that confining hotel room. Uh, are you the uh, store manager? Uh, your assistant, Davis. Uh, the, uh, a, a sign in your window, uh, for help? You need a stock boy, two dollars an hour. I I'll take it, Mr. Davis. Uh, what's your name? Uh, Tufts. All right, Tufts, full or part-time? Um, uh, part-time, but, uh, as many hours as I can get in. Stock rooms downstairs, report to the chief clerk, get a time card, punch in and out, you'll be paid every day. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Davis. Y.V. Garfield and wife, North Sneedham Drive, Detroit, didn't exist. No such persons, no such address. K.C. Cops furnishes with a description of the couple which fit loosely, Rohan and Mercedes Turner, except no red hair. 
but I'd already figured he'd have died it by now. Scores and I brought our chiefs up to date, and an hour later, we were on a plane to Kansas City. You think he's still there? Well, if not, we'll pick up the end of the string. Well, if they have busted out, where do you suppose he might be heading? Well, Mexico? Oh, she's too smart for Mexico. They'll go out of the country, somewhere they speak English, England, Australia, New Zealand. Well, maybe not England. The cops are too good there. Hey, you think they still got the same car? Last we heard was a gray compact, Michigan plates. That might mean something. What? In Virginia, they use New Jersey plates. In Kansas City, they have Michigan plates. Yeah, might change again, huh? Yeah, Kansas City, Missouri, just across the river from Kansas City, Kansas. My hunch is they'll pick Kansas plates. Less obvious? Exactly. Mercedes Turner's a cutie. Plenty smart. Not too sure about Rohan. You really zeroed in on him, didn't you? From the beginning, before there was any proof, I knew he was there. I just knew what he looked like. A bit how he thinks. He's our best bet. The weakest? Yeah. Yeah, put it like that. Rohan's intelligent, but he's emotional. Poor control. He's going to break sooner or later. He's more of a drag than an asset. If Mercedes Turner were all by herself, it'd be another story. By October 1973, it was obvious that Jake Colos couldn't afford to keep funding new episodes of The Zero Hour, thanks to AFTRA's changing terms. He looked to make a deal with a network. And I felt it was uncalled for at that point because, you know, I'm the one that took this gamble. I'm the one that started this whole thing, and there's certainly every right to get more money for their... But none of the actors were complaining. Everybody was thrilled to do it. We had no problem getting these films. Uh, to do these shows, and uh, everybody loved it. It was kind of a love fest. They were bringing uh, this other business reality into it. And I think I just felt, you know, I just don't want, it's just not worth it. Plus, it was probably going to be that much more difficult to make it work financially. And I was exhausted. I'd been on the road a lot, selling the show and all this stuff. So I said, maybe I should just make a deal with somebody and let them figure out. And that's kind of what happened. The Mutual Broadcasting System and C. Edward Little were interested. We made the deal fairly quickly. I think we met in person once, probably talked on the phone a couple of times, but the deal was made fairly quickly. And one conversation I do remember had to do with hells and dams. I wanted the stories to continue to be strong. I think maybe that's where we had a little bit of a falling out because I was, you know, I wanted to do strong pieces. I know Rod did, a little, little more edge to him, and they said something about, well, you know, we can only do, I don't know, two hells in one day. I don't know, it's some stupid corporate thing, and I probably tuned out after that. But that, that, that was what I, one of the things I do remember. A deal came together quickly. A press conference announcing the move was set for November 1st. We heard that presser at the beginning of this episode. The Zero Hour would be moving to Mutual on December 17, 1973. I never really had anything to do with Mutual. Once the deal was made, it was their deal, and you know I was on to other things. We wanted to do things that were stronger, and as opposed to just a rehash of what was done in the 30s or 40s or 50s. In other words, in the same style, in the you know radio uh, theater of the mind, all that kind of stuff, but to do stories that are a little more contemporary or stronger and mm -hmm. all that and I think he was resistant to it because I think initially when we talked you know I was discussing whether I would 
stay on, and they had wanted me to stay on. And then when we talked about the future, it was very clear to me that I was going to get really caught up in this whole corporate claptrap. That's probably why I opted out. Before new episodes could be broadcast, Mutual would air the 13 five-part episodes already directed by Elliot Lewis. Gradually, I sold off the jewelry and we began to accumulate the money we needed to get our passports and arrange for passage out of the country. Hugh, meanwhile, continued to disappear each day. But I must confess that it was easier not having him underfoot in each of those small hotel rooms we occupied. Good morning. Didn't think you were going to show. Uh, sorry, Mr. Davis. I, yes. I, Christmas is day after tomorrow. Well, I'd be quiet. You said that uh, uh, working here, I, I can get a 20% discount? Yes, Tufts. Anything in the store. Now, get with it. Restock counter 15 with perfume. Uh, yes, sir. As soon as I get my jacket. We arrived in Kansas City before noon. The local cops gave us plenty of cooperation. We started checking hotels, big and little, good and bad, a million of them. At some of them, they remembered a couple staying a few days, running an ad to sell jewelry, then checking out. At the Jefferson, there was an unclaimed letter for the Garfields from a Mrs. Arms, return address in Kansas City. They went to check it out, but nobody was home. Downtown garages were covered for a three-year-old gray compact with Michigan or Kansas plates. By then, it was dark. Walking to our hotel, I passed a big super drugstore. I needed some things, went in. Walk back toward men's toiletries. Can I help you? Yes, I uh, need a shaving kit and some blades. How and... about a new electric razor? No, just uh, blades, cream, uh, aftershave. Something wrong? The man over there uh, by the perfume counter. From the stockroom. Has he been here long? Most of us are extra help for the Christmas rush. Is there anything else? Uh, no, I don't think so. Hey, where'd he go? Why, back to the stockroom, I guess. Where? Where's that? In the basement. Hey, your things! Don't you want them? Uh, a guy just come through here? Yeah, Tufts, like a rocket in his tail. Same as you. Which way? The alley. South now? Yes. New Orleans, I guess. Not directly. Where's the map of Louisiana? In the glove compartment. It isn't. Oh, I remember I had it in our room at the hotel. We'll get another one. If the policeman had tried to arrest you in the drugstore, what would you have done? Shot him. Would that have helped? There'll always be another. I'll get as many as I can. Let me see the gun. Okay. Be careful. How many shots? Seven. One in the chamber, six in the clip. Hugh, look, a truck stalled up there. Left his lights on. No one around. He probably went for help. Stop the car. Get the get the Nebraska plates. Okay. Right away. 
I'll keep the gun in my purse. At least I knew Rohan and the Turner woman were in Kansas City. Why had they stayed over? Well, I figured she was still trying to sell more jewelry. I beat it to the newspaper office. They were making up the morning edition. There was an ad, as I expected. Brobridge Hotel, room number, with a diamond bracelet for sale. When Scores and I got there, we'd missed them by half an hour. The local cops and the highway patrol sent out an all-points bulletin. Meanwhile, I went out to see Mrs. Arms, who wrote the unclaimed letter. She was at home now, pleasant-faced woman, mixed gray and blonde hair, living in a big, comfortable fieldstone house, log burning in the fireplace. Why, yes, I went down to Mrs. Garfield's room at the hotel. I was interested in the fur coat she wanted to sell. But you didn't buy it? No, it was a lovely coat. I, I made her an offer, but she didn't take it. Well, I came home and thought it over. And later, I tried to call her, but there was no answer. So I dropped her a note offering more. Mrs. Arms, when you were in the hotel room, uh, did you see anything unusual? No, nothing. Uh, pieces of luggage, closed, toilet articles on the dresser. Think, please try to remember. It may not seem important, but anything other than personal items. Well, now, let me see. There was a, a writing desk... Uh, uh, something on it. Mm. Um, a, a red cover, uh, blue and white letters, uh, folded. Uh, a map. Of what, Mrs. Arms? What map? Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Louisiana. That's it. Louisiana, New Orleans. What town is this? I don't know. How far are we from Kansas City? About 40 miles. I'm worried. They must have roadblocks up further down. We just keep going until we hit them. No, wait. That bus in front of the cafe. Hugh, let me off here, middle of the block. What for? I'm catching that bus south. We have to split up here. It's the only way to get through. Wait a minute. No, take this money. Meet me in New Orleans, the old hotel on Duplo Street. Use the name Graham. When? Christmas. Be careful. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. Serving is your host. This week, in Bill S. Ballinger's The Wife of the Red-Haired Man, Patty Duke Aston is Mercedes, John Aston is Rohan, and Howard Duff is Detective Williams. Featured in the cast are Harold Gould as Detective Scores, Byron Kane as Town, Paula Winslow as Mrs. Arms, Jerry Fogle as Davis, and Cynthia Adler as the clerk. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is the executive producer and Karen Lee Cohn, associate producer. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. 
The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher. It is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again. Rest your eyes and listen here. To the Zero Hour. This is Ed Beach. I'd like you to join me this Saturday at 8, from 8 to midnight, for Just Jazz. I'll be doing a four-hour feature on the great Gerald Wilson Orchestra and Gerald's compositions of the 1960s. You come on along. This is Van Jay reminding you that you're listening to Jazz and Talk Radio, WRVR in New York, 106.7 on your FM dial. Associated Press, December 21st, 1973, New York City. The script appears strange at first. Its directions are for the ear, not the eye, and say things like, doorbell on, footsteps, doorbell opened, traffic in background. That traffic noise is 25 years old, laughs Jimmy Dwan, a veteran CBS sound effects man. You can hear a doorman shouting on it somewhere. That doorman, he's been dead 20 years. Duan's recorded sound effects are old, but not his script. It's of 1973 vintage, written solely for radio. Yes, radio. It's part of a brave new effort by two networks to bring back, in limited form, the golden days of coast-to-coast -coast radio drama that most everyone remembers, but hasn't heard in more than a decade. The mutual broadcasting system fired the first shot Monday with The Zero Hour, a 30-minute, five-night-a-week thriller serial hosted by writer-narrator Rod Serling of Twilight Zone fame. Mutual, which says it has 630 affiliates, bought the series after lengthy studies proved there existed a sufficient market for radio drama on a network basis. Advertisers liked the idea too, according to Mutual's president, C. Edward Little. We got a tremendous amount of client interest after we announced it, adding that the show will be fed from Mutual's Washington, D.C. headquarters each weeknight at 7 p.m. We feel that we'll start off with 150 to 200 stations. The series will be offered on a first refusal basis to mutual affiliates. They also said that if the show clicks, other radio projects, such as new comedy or anthology series, may follow. But they emphasize that such shows are strictly in the talking stages. Jay Sharbat. If I might tell you an X-rated radio show that I did, live, it was Arch Obler's Lights Out, featured Agnes Moorhead and a man named Wally Mayer, and I had a supporting part. I was a scientist, as I often was a scientist. We had an East Coast and a West Coast program. 
We on the uh, West Coast would do a show, for instance, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon so that it could be heard at 8 o'clock in the evening on the East Coast, and then three hours later we would have to do it at 8 o'clock live again for the West Coast. And conversely, people who did shows in New York would do shows at 12 midnight so it would reach the West Coast at 9 o'clock. Now that was their repeat live show. I emphasize live as I go back to the Lights Out experience. Now this was at 5 o'clock in the afternoon to be reached uh, East Coast at 8 o'clock. And the story this particular day was a giant chemical that had gotten loose. Lights out, as Arch Obler shows, are always scary and horrific in science fiction. And a giant chemical had gotten out somehow, and huge holes in the countryside developed. So this one scene involving Agnes Moorhead and Wally Mayer and myself was a group of scientists coming to this series of holes, and we looked at it, and my line was, hmm. That's a strange chemical reaction. And this is live. Now, if you'll recall, this happened to be, incidentally, the very same studio when I walked in and won my part on Bethel Meriday four or five years before. And in that very same booth was sitting Arch Obler and the engineer and the secretary and a production man or lady. So we are, we're on the air, and on comes the scene, and now is my line. Now Agnes is standing right in front of me, facing me. The booth is here, and I'm standing here. Wally is there. Agnes is right here, and I'm standing opposite. This is 44 Mike, and my line is dialogue, dialogue, line, and then my line is, hmm, that's a strange chemical erection. And, then, <laughs> and I... I looked across the mic at her and I mouthed, naturally whispered, did I say that? <laughs> and Agnes nodded. And I looked to my right and in the booth, nobody was in the booth. They were all down on the floor. <laughs> and it seemed like hours had occurred. It was only a second because naturally, the professionalism of Wally, whom I think had the next line, he immediately answered the line he should answer, and the people didn't know. And there was never a call from the East, did I hear what I heard? Nothing! Because they may have thought they heard, and that's a strange chemical reaction. <laughs> Three hours later, we had to go back and do it again live for the West Coast. And my hand was shaking like this, you know. But I did it, I did it right. Now that really happened. You've heard of other bloopers and you've heard of things for the past few years. That really happened. You know Ben Hall Taylor? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book, you know. He, mm -hmm. wrote, he wrote in about <clears throat> showing how unconscious we were about anything except just our voice and doing the lines. I was very pregnant with my son. And finally, instead of, I was, this was on Silver Theater and mm -hmm. I worked mm -hmm. regularly. I was on every week. So finally, Glenn Hall said, uh, you know, you're looking a little bit pregnant, so I think maybe we better just, just let you do the commercial. So I said, oh, I'm sure glad to get the money, you know, be on the show. It was for Silver, uh, uh, International Silver, or one mm -hmm. of the silver companies. And we never thought anything about it. I got up to the microphone, you know, In front of out, a studio audience. Right in front of yeah. a big studio audience, mm -hmm. big CBS studio. And I had a line that says, it's lovely, and yet it's a bit frightening. Tomorrow, I'm going to be Mrs. Anderson. And somebody <laughs> in the audience went, <laughs> and they, you could just hear this. And Glenn Hall, 
in the glass booth fell right down on the floor. Just kid, right behind him. I never thought a thing about it at all. And I kept my poise, of course, and went on to the end with this commercial. But that was the end, needless to say, of my appearing. From then on, they put me behind the curtain. But that was funny. That was really funny. Now, the commercials, you, know, you just mentioned, they put you behind the curtain. The commercials were often done... Yes, away Lux, from the Lux they did. They were always done off stage. Mm -hmm. yeah, it sense. was interesting. The studio audience didn't, they may have heard that, yes. but they didn't get but, to uh, see it. But many the of them were also done right in front of the audience. Mm -hmm. They would mm -hmm. just stop, you know, the music, and then they would come uh -huh. and do the, They did that on The Life of Riley. Mm -hmm. The girls would read the uh, commercials or the men. Question. Yeah, you, they, you alluded to this earlier, Mary Jane, but I, I would like you to tell an Arch Obler story. Oh, well, I, he always carried a dirty little poodle with him, I remember. <laughs> remember that? Oh, a filthy little dog. And, uh, well, he was very uh, protective of his material, and uh, he, it, it was just, it was interesting. It just wasn't very exciting working for Arch, really. He was, uh, for me, Elliot worked a lot with him, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, he thought Elliot was, the, you know, the best, and he was, but uh, I, he was just strange <laughs> to me. John Dunning asked Rosemary DeCamp about working for Arch Obler, and, and Rosemary DeCamp said, I remember we used to uh, go out for food or whatever in between performances, and, and then from time to time he'd have us over at his house, and I always remembered he served the most dubious food. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, here's that famous voice you've heard so often on Twilight Zone and Night Gallery. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome for you here live and unrecorded a distinguished writer, producer, narrator, Mr. Rod Serling. Thank you very much. 
and I'll be as candid as I can be. They said, we're going to stop production for a while because we need some backing. And I said, okay. And they called up and they said, we're going to be on Mutual now. We've sold the package to Mutual. And then I said, swell. And then I never heard another word. So I called a friend of mine who knew something about it and said, what happened? And they said, well, they figured out, they watched you, and it seemed like you'd read a script, and then uh, you'd make a couple of marks on the page with your pencil, and then you'd made a couple of phone calls, and there were actors there, and then you pointed to people every once in a while, and uh, they looked at the money they were paying you to do this, and they figured they could do it, so they took the money, and they're doing it. They're not doing it. The show got canceled. <laughs> it looks easy, but it's not. Yeah, they cut it to a half hour, and they played. The unions got after him. Everybody started hitting him. They started repeating him and not paying for the repeats, doing all kinds of stuff. And they really cracked down on him. But, you know, it's a terrible thing. There's nothing wrong, really, with what they did, except that they lacked the wisdom to say that if they didn't know about something, they ought to ask somebody who did know. Once Mutual purchased the rights to the Zero Hour, they removed Elliot Lewis as director, and Jay Kolos no longer had anything to do with the production. Both had good things to say about each other, but not for Mutual. But that was Mutual that did yeah. that then. Yeah. Jay wouldn't have done that. But you know, a terrible thing, and you have to insist upon it, you have to be nasty. If you're in creative control, you have to be in creative control. Whatever happened, I'm, ha I'm pleased that the Sears thing worked. But my letter of agreement said I was in complete and absolute creative control of everything. I got a note from them once, and they said, kill this script. One note happened once. And I called them back and said, you can't say kill this script. You have to tell me why. You know, this is not something that we just make up. You can't work that way. So at a meeting, I explained to them that there are only really three precious things in that business. And the first was the idea, and the second was time, and the third was money. And if they had a script there and they said, kill the script, they weren't observing any of the three things. There was some reason. There's nothing wrong with tearing down a fence. But the wise man will first inquire why it was put up, because it may be that there's no longer a reason for the fence. But it may also be, if you don't ask the question, that you're letting loose a bunch of saber-toothed tigers, you know. So ask the question. And for somebody like the guy at Mutual, or Colos. Colos is a great advertising man. I would no more think of walking in and running his advertising agency. I don't know anything about an advertising agency. Well, that's actually very nice, and I did not know that. I lost track of Elliot after uh, we turned over to Mutual. And also, uh, in looking back, I didn't really appreciate, uh, and he was phenomenal in his work as a professional the director and, and all that, but I didn't really appreciate who he was and until later, until I really started to, I mean, I knew his background a little bit, but he was an icon. Jazz and talk, 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 j
Are you ready for the ultimate test? Are you safe? The time is now on the Hollywood Radio Theater. This is The Zero Hour. The Hollywood Radio Theater. through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater, presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's best-selling novel of the pursuit of a damned couple. The wife of the red-haired man. Starring Patty Dugaston. John Astor. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. And now for the concluding episode of The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. After seven years in prison, Hugh Rohan has returned to claim his wife, Mercedes. In a confrontation with her second husband, Albert Turner, Rohan panics and murders Turner. Out of her love for Rohan, Mercedes Turner collects her jewels and her fur coat, and together the lovers flee. But the years in prison have changed the young red-haired boy into a hollow, broken man. Two New York City detectives, scores of homicide and Williams of the 19th Precinct, have been assigned to the case. After long weeks of painstaking work, they've traced the couple to Kansas City. But once again, Mercedes Turner and Hugh Rohan evade them by splitting up. She to take a bus to New Orleans, he to drive their car alone. But first, this word. Sterling Manhattan Cable Television that in music, the future is here and in television, the future is cable. I'd been right. Roadblocks had been set up on highways leading to New Orleans. But the police were looking for two people in a gray compact car. 
And the bus I was on was stopped only long enough for an officer to question the driver. He was waiting for me in the nearly deserted hotel on Tupelo Street. He was in bed, his temperature raging. He seemed fuzzy with his fever, although he did struggle out of bed to greet me. So glad to see you. I thought you weren't going to come. You're sick. Oh, no, it's just, it's just a cold. I froze driving that heap without my coat. You were right about the roadblocks. Come on now. Get back in bed, honey. Okay. Oh, that's better. Whew. It's hot. I'll get some aspirin. No, 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 that's okay. Stay with me. That's the most important medicine. That you stay with me. All right. What about the roadblock? Well, they stopped me. If I'd had my gun, I'd have shot my way through, but they didn't even ask questions. Man alone, blue car instead of gray, different plates. Huey, you said you would have shot your way through? I told you, Mercy, I won't go back, and I won't be separated from you again. Here. Christmas present for you. Perfume. My favorite perfume. You remembered. I can't ever forget anything about you. You want me to ask where you got the money? All right. Where? Kansas City. I had a part-time job. Stock boy. Just to buy me a Christmas present. Is there a better reason to work? I think it's the best present. Oh, I have something for you, too. A pipe. With a bowl trimmed in silver. You remembered. Honey. Remember before we were married? You told me if you had me, and you were a doctor who smoked a silver-trimmed pipe, you'd be content. That was all you wanted. Yeah. Merry Christmas, honey. <laughs> you don't, please. <laughs> I please don't cry, please. What happened? Mercy, what happened? I don't know. Life. Life happened. It's so unfair. Yeah. Mercy. Hmm? You, you remember I told you that I knew what the cop was thinking? Do you remember? Yes. Well, we got through the roadblock, but he hasn't stopped. He's on to us. He knows what we're planning. Shh. Yeah, no, he's going to find me. And you know... Shh. Hugh, please. Shh, please. When he finds me, I'm going to kill him. Rohan and the woman got through the roadblock somehow. Probably repainted the car and changed plates once again. Split up, perhaps, only one of them was in the car when it passed the block. Scores and I went straight into New Orleans. 
I knew my man by then well enough to know that he needed a port city from which to escape the country. Now they'll ship out from here. Yeah. Well, they'll sure have a fantastic selection of ships. They're all covered. Every ship, boat, plane, bus, everything's covered. Well, you know, Will, you're assuming they're here in New Orleans. They're here. I'll tell you something else. They'll be looking for passage to an English-speaking country, someplace where they won't be conspicuous. So, what's the game plan? We're here. We wait. They've got to move. They can't stay. And the moment they try to leave the city, we've got them. Murder one. Self-confidence. Self-confidence is the thing that drives a man on to his goal. Self-confidence makes a man stand up and face the most adverse conditions. Self-confidence is what Connections host Arthur Albert has. If you've listened often, you must know that uh, uh, I may be wrong, but uh, you'll forgive me for defending myself. I don't think you're being fair to me. Arthur Albert has self-confidence. That's why he can exist successfully with his paranoia. If the system tries to get Arthur, he'll be ready. You can be ready, too. Listen to Connections, weekday mornings at 11 o'clock on WRVR. Be the first on your block to admit that you're paranoid, just like Arthur. I don't see myself that way. I'm not even sure that, that, um, uh, that I, you know, a lot of words bother me. I think that's too quick a judgment. The bazaar with pizzazz that's definitely African is called a shanty. A shanty bazaar at 65th Street and Lexington Avenue, where folks with flair shop. I'm Gene Callender. I'm president of the New York Urban Coalition, and I shop here frequently. I like their um, unique designs. I, I, they made, made dashiki suits for me, and they've made um, robes for me to use in the pulpit. And uh, I just think it's a swinging place. It's a unique store. I don't, I don't know of any store like it. There's no other store like it. Ashanti. We moved from the hotel the next morning, although Hugh still had a fever. I found an old rooming house, a private place the police would overlook. We were the only paying guests. It was a marvelous old home run by an ancient southern lady who appeared too frail to keep up such a place. But she cleaned and cooked and tended her overgrown garden. And for two weeks, Hugh and I didn't stir from that house. Finally, of course, Hugh had to make contact with Bert Crossley, the convict he'd known in prison, the man who'd get us our passports. We were disappointed to find that Bert was back in prison. But he had a brother, Whip who owned a bar just outside the Vieux Carré and might be able to help us. Hugh went to see him. Friend of Ber Brother Bert, huh? Come on back to my office. What do you want? I... I served time with Bert in Bordeaux. I'm, uh... I'm Red Cargill. Let's get rid of a question. You hot? Plenty. I and my wife want to get out of the country. With a lady along, that makes it rough. I can pay for it, rough or not. You, you have five grand. That's what it'll take for two passports. I have it. Where do you want to go? Australia, New Zealand, any place they speak English. England? 
No, no, not England or Canada. Okay, don't come back here again. Where can I reach you? At this number. That's where the stand. I don't know how long it'll take, but when I call you, be ready to move fast and have the five grand ready. Agreed? Yes, agreed. Scrolls and I sat there for three weeks. There was no sign of Rohan or the woman. Hotels, nightclubs, planes, trains, buses, ships, all covered, not a trace. I wasn't worried yet. I knew Rohan was someplace in the city. I could feel it. Sometimes he seemed so near, I half expected to bump into him around the next corner. Scores, however, had a problem. I gotta get back, Will. Homicide bugging you? Well, the office is swamped. Yeah. When are you leaving? Flight this afternoon. What about you? You gonna stay? You can depend on it. We waited for Whit Crosley's call. Afraid to leave the house for a minute. One of us must always be close to the phone, Hugh said. As the days passed, he refused to sleep. Certain that Crosley's call would come in the middle of the night and he wouldn't hear it. And so his tension increased directly because of his lack of sleep. He paced the room continuously. Back and forth. Pausing only to listen for a telephone that never rang. Please, honey. Please lie down. Has that cop gotten to him? Is that what's happened? How could he? Because he knows what I'm doing. I told you that. I told you he knows everything I think, every move I make. Hugh. Hello? Cargill there. Mercy, it's him. Listen. Yeah, yeah. Get down here right away. You're leaving an hour. Just you. But my wife. Listen, no time to waste. Can't get you to Australia, but a ship I know. Standing off. Gonna drop a crewman for an emergency operation. I can fix the captain. Where to? Ireland. You better take it. The ship's not berthed here, but I can get you aboard in the launch. She's got a day's call in Miami, and your wife can join you there. Mercy? Take it. That's a good idea. Okay, I'll be right down. After scores left, I spent my time haunting the docks. A hundred times I thought I saw them, walking along the street or hurrying out onto a waiting ship, but it wasn't them. And gradually, a strange feeling occupied me. I lost the conviction that they were in New Orleans. Somehow, in some way, I felt certain they'd eluded me, slipped away. But how? How had they accomplished it? I made one last circle, walking from pier to wharf, covering as much of the waterfront as I could, one last time. Then, tired and thirsty, I stopped in a small bar, a place where seamen hang out. I met a Jamaican, a wiper, bought him a drink. Charles! Oh, need this drink, man. Just out of the infirmary, appendicitis. Rupture? That's rough. Captain had to set me ashore between Galveston and Miami. Nasty beat of business. What ship? Dermuid, out of Sydney. Captain Larson's master now. Now I need another berth. That shouldn't be too hard. No. I'm sorry I missed it, though. Sailing to Galway and Dublin. Never been there, you know. You said the Demuid uh, was sailing to Ireland? Right-o. First port of call, Galway. Any stops between? One day only, Miami. Of course. Drink up. Galway, of course. 
What do these Pennsylvania tree frogs croaking into the night have in common with this 7th Avenue IRT Express? Listen to Daniel Mack's radio program every weeknight, 5 to 6 p.m. here on WRVR. How would you like to win one of the world's most exciting tape decks? The $1,000 four-channel TAC 3340S. The TAC tape deck that is just about every feature of a professional recording studio. Well, you may if you enter the FM Guide TAC four-channel sweepstakes. FM Guide, the monthly magazine which brings you in advance the best of the greater New York area's FM radio programs, wants to award you the incomparable TAC 3340S. The drawing will be held in New York City on October 1st, and you don't have to be present to win. Just pick up a copy of FM Guide's September issue in any newsstand, write your name and address on the cover, or a facsimile, and send it to TAC Contest, care of FM Guide, 1290 Avenue of the Americas, New York 1019. That's TAC, 3340S, care of FM Guide, 1290 Avenue of the Americas, New York 1019. You could be the winner. I drove alone from New Orleans to Miami, not daring to stop. The captain had arranged for me to be brought aboard, and soon I was with Hugh again. Two weeks after that, we were dropped on the shore outside Galway, an old Irish port there almost from the beginning of time. We drove from Connaught to Connemara, through hamlets with names that fall from the lips like notes of music. Moycullen, Chindilly, Derenine, Alina Hinch, moors and rolling hills, and the gray rock crags of inlets sprayed by the lead-colored waters of the Atlantic. Near a tiny crossroad settlement by the sea, we found a little three-room cottage, whitewashed, cleansed by rains, and bleached by the sun. We could run no further. That's where we would stay. One night, eating our dinner by a turf fire, Take it away, Mercy. I'm not hungry. Do you hear it? There's something walking abroad tonight. Your imagination? No. Listen. It's only the wind. I hear it. It's there. It's the past, out there in the night. I'm going to boil some water and, and fill, fill the tub. A hot bath, honey. Good for your nerves. Come talk to me. I'm busy. To the police. New York City. What are you doing? If... If anything happens, accident, anything, look in my pocket. What are you saying? Only that I love you. The journey that hadn't made a scheduled stop in departure in New Orleans. She wasn't carried in the Fort Bulletin. That's how I missed her. By the time I'd gotten the information on her, she'd reached Dublin and sailed on. 
The police in Ireland are a national organization. We alerted them, and ten days later, they informed us they'd traced the government. I wired Superintendent O'Hara not to arrest them yet, just to keep them under wraps. On an island, there's a small chance of escape. With warrants for the arrest of Hugh Rohan and Mercedes Turner and papers for extradition, I flew to Ireland. From Shannon, I took a bus to Limerick, Limerick to Galway by rail. In Galway City, I was met by Inspector Green. You have the necessary papers? Yes, I have. All in order. I've arranged for you to stay at the hotel. The papers will be approved this night. Oh, you're uh, not planning to pick them up until tomorrow? No, it's a bit of a drive to the cottage. Here's my car. Are you carrying a gun? Yes. Well, we don't carry them here. Well, you better tomorrow. It won't be necessary. He's armed. I know the man. He'll shoot it out. That would be foolish of him. Well, is it all right for me to carry mine? If you insist. Yes, I, I can arrange it. It's most unusual. I found it impossible to sleep that night. I'd been after them for so long. For nearly two months, I'd held onto an invisible tether, the other end loosely fastened to Rohan and Mercedes Turner. Now at last, when morning came, the final slack would be gathered in. I lay in the soft bed wondering what Rohan was doing. Did he know it was his last night of freedom? Did he hold Mercedes Turner in his arms, warm in his love? Through that night, Hugh lay close to me. He spoke only once. I'm cold, he said. Please keep me warm. I kissed him. And his lips were like ice. In the morning, he arose early, shaved, dressed with care. We sat together at the table having our coffee. It had begun to rain. What are you planning to do today? I don't know. There's a beautiful abbey at Kylemore. Shall we go see it? Perhaps. But it's a gloomy day. The rain will stop later on. Maybe then. Hugh? Those cars outside. Yes. I've been expecting them. Give me my gun. Hugh, no. Please, Where's no. Your purse? No more killing, Hugh, please. We're officers of the law. You're under arrest. Don't, Hugh. You're not a murderer. Don't. They won't separate us. Not ever again. Hugh, no! I stood in front of the cottage door. Rain splashing against my collar, running down my neck. The end of the trail. Line drawn in. Suddenly the door swung open and Rohan's revolver stared me in the face. I threw myself to the ground. When he fired the second time, I shot him. Oh, Williams! Are you hurt? No. Lucky bit for you. Yes. Yes, isn't it? Yeah, if you don't mind, uh... I'll go in the laundry, get the woman.
Are uh, you Mercedes Turner? I'm Mercedes Rohan. Your husband is dead. Yes. Did you know there were blanks in his gun? Yes, I knew. Did you put them there? Yes. So he wouldn't kill again. He didn't know. I tried to stop him. Maybe it's just as well. Williams, this was in his pocket. Thank you. He said, in case of an accident, to the police, New York City. I alone shot and killed Albert Turner. My wife, Mercedes Turner Rohan, was not responsible in any way. It signed you, Rohan. <laughs> you. Hockey's newest professional team, the New York Golden Blades, presents the world's first hockey spectacular in Madison Square Garden with Gordie Howe versus Bobby Hull, Ted Green against Andre Lacroix, New York's Harry Howell, and hundreds of other hockey stars in a six-period, four-team round robin. The date is Tuesday, September 25, at 7.30 p.m. The place is Madison Square Garden. Choice seats are still available at the Garden for you and your friends and your family at regular prices. If you want tickets starting at $2 for this once-in-a-lifetime professional hockey event with Howe and Hull, hockey's greatest superstars, get your tickets while they last. For reservations, call Madison Square Garden, 212-564-4400, 212-564-4400, or the New York Golden Blades Direct at 212-239-4875 or any Ticketron office. That concludes this week's production of The Zero Hour, Bill S. Ballinger's The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days, at the same time, Monday through Friday. So on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's The Wife of the Red-Haired Man, Patty Duke Aston was Mercedes, John Aston was Rohan, Howard Duff was Detective Williams. Featured in the cast were Harold Gould as Detective Scores, Stanley Adams was Crosley, Don Pedro Colley was the Sailor, and Richard Peel was Green. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is the executive producer and Karen Lee Cohen, associate producer. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in Monday 
And once again, rest your eyes and listen here to the Zero Hour. This is Les Davis. My father was really proud when I told him about my four-hour show here on WRVR. Of course, he's not too happy that I have to stay up until midnight. Oh, but is he happy I got a job. Why don't you sample my work, starting weeknights at 8 on WRVR. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? curious but don't know where to start try the mysterious old radio listening society a podcast dedicated to the great horror crime and suspense shows from the golden age of radio including tales from suspense lights out quiet please the shadow and more each episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the old time radio vault complete with historical notes and trivia at the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. This is a special closed-circuit presentation of Zero Hour, a new radio drama series with Ron Serling, which will premiere over Mutual on December 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Details have been sent to all stations. What will follow is a 14-minute condensation of one half-hour episode starring Academy Award winner George Kennedy. This condensation is not for broadcast. It is for audition and sales purposes only. Write a first call for all affiliates expires Monday, November 19th. Stations desiring clearance are urged to contact station relations as soon as possible. Now, Mr. Serling. I listened to the show once or twice, and it seemed it was, I don't know, it, it was different. You know, they were doing where I have the five half hours with a hook every day. They did a, the one half hour complete, which actually probably was maybe a better way to go, but I thought we needed a hook to kind of make it a different, and I thought we would get more promotion out of it. But looking back, I, I don't know that that wasn't somewhat of a mistake. Once Mutual finished running the last of the Lewis-directed Jake Kolos episodes of The Zero Hour on March 14, 1974, they went dark for six weeks. They were busy, completely changing the format. Now, one star would be featured in five different anthologies during a week. The show returned on April 29th. The first week's star was Mel Torme. Bye Bye Narco was the first new script produced under Mutual's umbrella. The Extortionist and the price of admission. 
And we have for you today to tape off the mutual line a 10-second and a 30-second promo for each one of those five programs. We ask you to make use of them liberally on a local basis uh, as the programs are scheduled. We'll just run through them on the line starting five seconds from now. This is Mel Torme. In the next zero hour, I play ordinary citizen Bud Long, and I meet a narcotics cop who makes war on drug users any way he can. What? What the hell? Who, who are you? Shut up. Move your butts out of that bed. Bud, who are they? Shut your mouth, lady. Hurry. Yeah, boss. Tell Jackson and Daniels to go downstairs and rip it apart. Move. Bud, how can they do this? Don't they need a warrant or something? Is your home safe? Maybe not. Join us for... Bye-bye, Narco. Cleveland Plain Dealer, June 16, 1974. Rod Serling, master writer of The Mysterious and Macabre, is playing a game of suspense with the good earth. On the side, he serves as host of The Zero Hour, a weekday radio mystery series beamed by the mutual broadcasting system. Serling's feelings about the recent upsurge in radio drama prompted a call to his rural home. It soon became apparent that he was disappointed with radio drama and TV. Serling made it clear that he has nothing to do with the writing or producing of the 25-minute dramas. I've caught the show about three times. One was passable, and two I would have flunked off the air. What they're trying to do, and they may succeed, is a show that is contemporary. But it sounds campy. The same thing applies to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. It has to be relevant stuff for 1974. Short of that, why not resurrect old shadow recordings? So far, I've yet to see either show relate to our time, either in story or technique. If they're selling us nostalgia, they've succeeded. It's thoroughly reminiscent of radio 30 years ago. I'm not bad rapping it, he said. It's just not what I expected. I realized the economics of the situation. I wouldn't want to spend my time writing a provocative radio drama and then get a check that would buy me a carton of cigarettes. Radio drama currently has the value of an antique. Won't it change for the better? I don't know, Serling said. I have no idea. I'm frequently wrong anyhow. I thought Nixon would be out of office by now. And I thought Sonny Liston would be heavyweight boxing champion for 20 years. Summing up his feelings about radio and TV, Serling said, I feel the same way about radio as I do about television as an art form. It doesn't rise to the occasion like it should, although television occasionally has. Radio today is more a display case than an art form. Raymond P. Hart. The Zero Hour in the new format ran 13 additional weeks before being canceled after the July 26, 1974 episode. In total, 130 episodes of the Zero Hour were produced. Most can be heard today. As I go back into what I know about your career, and instead of starting at the beginning, going back from now, we look back about nine years ago and you were directing and producing a series called The Zero Hour, which was syndicated. 
Yeah, radio show. I listened to some of those tapes of that show, and, uh, you know, you guys did just about everything you could possibly do. You had top-line talent, good writing, solid stories. Mm -hmm. Why didn't it work? They couldn't sell it. That's what I mean. Do you have a theory about why radio today will not go on stations anymore? Yeah, I think there's no national advertiser support. Incidentally, I was listening to your on-the-air thing, and I heard Fletcher giving the closing credits. Was that a Studio One? Yes. Because Fletcher was my partner, right-hand general assistant in uh, the Sears Radio Theater, Mutual Radio Theater, that we just completed. And we ran into the same problems there. We just completed doing 235 original hours on the CBS radio network. That <laughs> was the Sears show. Mutual picked up the second year. They had to give it up because where stations would be able to sell to national sponsors, for example, KNX here is a CBS station and yet carried the Mutual Radio Theater, including the title Mutual Radio Theater. Locally, George Nikolov, KNX, was able to sell the local time allotments to national sponsors. If I could name a few of them, Lufthansa, General Motors, Wall Street Journal, were buying local spots on KNX, and yet national sponsors were not supporting the show. I think the only way it can come back is if somebody gives it a chance to come back. The problem we had on both Sears and Mutual and Zero Hour is that people seem to have forgotten that things have to be sold. It's, it would be very difficult for you to sell me something I've never heard of and didn't know existed. And once I heard of it and found out it existed, didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was true uh, to some degree of the zero hour shown. It was certainly true of both Sears Radio Theater and Mutual Radio Theater. Everybody had good intentions, but they sat in their offices waiting for somebody to, to call them up and buy the show. And uh, I don't think that's the way to, you run the railroad. No. You, know, you got to let it let people know it's out there. The audience reaction was marvelous. People would pick it up and they'd listen to it. And as I say, mostly young audience. Although the Zero Hour went off the air in the spring of 1974, the people involved didn't stop working. Rod Serling always kept a full schedule. His final radio performance was part of Fantasy Park, a fantasy rock concert aired by nearly 200 stations in 1974 and 75. Always a heavy smoker, on May 3, 1975, Serling had a heart attack. A second heart attack two weeks later forced doctors to agree that a risky open-heart surgery was necessary. On June 26th, Serling had a third heart attack on the operating table and died two days later at Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York. He was just 50. His funeral and burial took place on July 2nd in Seneca, New York. I think there's an unfortunate thing in the entertainment business. 
if it's properly done, whatever it is, what you do, what I do, what Jack does, if it's properly done, it looks to somebody on the outside like, well, that's nothing to it. Mm. You know, I can do that. I just turn on a machine and hold a microphone in the fellow's face and ask him questions. Great. But there's more to it than that. And unfortunately, a lot of people have come in in the history of the entertainment business from the Greeks, I suppose, where somebody said, well, he thinks he can write a play. What do you see what I write? <laughs> What's so great about the frogs? I'll write a play called The Gypsies or whatever. You know, well, there's a talent to it. So a lot of things get screwed up, unfortunately. Elliot Lewis would continue in TV before again working with mutual and radio dramas at the end of the decade. Actually, my first endeavor in the whole live theater business happened about right around the year 2000 or so. I had taken a tour with Paula, my present wife, and my son, Philip, of the Lower East Side Tenement Museum, which is on Orchard Street. Sure, yeah. And I took the tour. It was a tenement that had been, um, you know, it was a time capsule. It's a terrific museum, basically, but it's a tenement. And it's where... My grandfather would have lived or lived in that area after he got off the boat on Ellis Island, Jewish immigrant, Eastern European Jewish immigrant, you know, one of the hundreds of thousands that came in late in the, uh, you know, up to about in the 1910, 1915, in that era. Anyway, I took this tour, we finished the tour, and I looked up Paula and I looked at Philip and I said, you know what, this might make a good idea for a musical. A couple years later, we had mounted the production of Stoop on Orchard Street, which was, that turned out, uh, in a theater six blocks from the Tenement Museum. In fact, for my promotional partner, in the early first six or seven months, we were off-Broadway with that production eight shows a week for 16 months. Mm-hmm. We had a second company in South Florida and a national tour, so it's been performed about a thousand times. But it came out of a visit to the uh, Tenement Museum. Jay Colos continued innovating, eventually forming a theater company, Orchard Street Productions, in 2001. These days he lives in Nashville, where Colos writes music and scripts for his own productions, while Orchard Street also licenses musicals and plays for local, regional, and North American tours. Well, that brings our look at the Zero Hour to a close. But we're not done with this era of radio drama just yet. I do remember that CBS Mystery Theater came in after us. Shortly we, thereafter. We were kind of the pioneers, and yep. then they, they came in. I didn't want to go back. I wanted to go forward. I felt that the dialogue patterns of 74, that the recording techniques of 74, that the whole style of relationship between actor and spoken word is different in 74, and it is. Maybe it's much too early in the game. Next time on Breaking Walls, we pick up in January of 1974 with the launch of Hyman Brown's CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Yeah.
reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning The Pictorial History of Radio's First 75 Years by B. Eric Rhodes The Radio Career of Rod Serling by Martin Grams Jr. The Archive from Digital Delhi Zero Hour Page As well as articles from the Arizona Republic The Associated Press The Cleveland Plain Dealer Pacific Stars and Stripes The San Mateo Times and the Van Wert Times Bulletin. On the interview front, Hyman Brown and Howard Duff spoke with Dick Pertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Howard Duff, Elliot Lewis, Les Tremaine, Janet Waldo, and Paula Winslow spoke with Chuck Shaden. Hear these chats at speakingofradio.com. Mary Jane Croft, Byron Kane and Elliot Lewis spoke with Spurdvac. For more info, go to Spurdvac.com. And J.M. Kolos was interviewed by yours truly, James Scully, in January of 2018. Selected music featured in today's episode was Caravan by 80 Drums Around the World and What Are You Doing New Year's Eve by Nancy Wilson. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the audio soap opera set in 1835 New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls episode 147 will spotlight Hyman Brown and the CBS Radio Mystery Theater in honor of the 50th anniversary of its debut on CBS. This episode will be available beginning New Year's Day 2024 everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until January 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 146. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. New Year's Eve.